0: Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It's a bad man's world, and we're here to talk about it on episode 9 of Lighting the Pipes.
1: BFG, how you doing? Not too bad, Bowman, not too bad at all. I'm uh, just uh, hearing the rain patter outside the windows here, kind of atmospheric, I guess, for the story we're about to uh, dissect. Yeah, we got four stories to dissect today, Um, and we decided to do that because...
0: Uh, uh... Sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just saying, we have four stories to do, but uh, you know the first story is always the one that gets things going.
0: It is, it is. And uh, one of the reasons why I've started off here with a bit of Jenny Lewis, and Bad Man's World, is because this is definitely a Bad Man's World that we're moving into today. Uh, oh, yes. A real, a real um, what, smorgasbord, a real cornucopia, if you will, of real nasty men in this story coming up, and in the... Uh, and in the following three,
1: depravity and d- depravity and greed and and uh, boundless ambition. And that's not to say we haven't seen bad men
0: before, because we have seen bad men before in this series. But we're going to see a real set of them here today. Listen, pal, uh, it is the twelfth of August. How are you been doing? How's your summer going? It's been about a month. A very
1: wet Summer's just really pretty much started here in August in uh, in, in Ottawa really wet summer, almost like a kind of uh, like a very extended spring. And now we're finally getting into some warmer weather now. And and, uh, we've had our first bit of rain, of course, that was inevitable. Mm -hmm. But uh, summer's starting to go into full gear. And and I guess it it might be uh, a late summer most likely this year. Uh, Well, my
0: mom was over, as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, just to visit us and to spend some time with uh, the granddaughter and all that was great. But we took a week up to Loch Lomond, you know, beautiful part of the country up there. It rained every fucking day.
1: So typical Scottish weather, madam.
0: Kind of, yeah. Like it's okay if you know you get a couple hours of sunshine, or but we we really didn't. It was just kind of kind of nasty the whole time. We drove up in the sun and we drove back home in relative sun, but the days in between, man, tell you what, eh, we got out and we did stuff. You know, we went to aquariums and we took walks and stuff. But it's not fun when you got rain pissing on you.
1: Definitely not. But it builds character. Yes, it does. That's why the Scottish have such character,
2: mm-hmm. and, why,
1: and, why, and why we Newfies surrounded by fog and whatnot have such character.
2: Oh,
1: <laughs> uh, well, speaking
0: of uh, Newfoundland, this is the week of my 20th high school graduation, and um, <laughs> it's. I was telling you about this last time, right? Um, but I'm seeing the pictures now, everybody getting together, and it's a good turnout, man. There's like 75, 80 people who have shown up and they're all together last night for a social. It's cool. Like, I wish I could have gone, to be honest with you, even though, yeah, I wasn't pally with some of these people back then. But, you know, people change, and it, I think it would have been cool to go back. And I never thought I'd hear myself say that because I'm not that kind of, you know, uh, I want to keep in touch. Let's let's do our best type guy. But I think 20 years is, a lot can happen in 20 years, you know?
1: I I think so, yeah. It'd be it'd be interesting to see how how everyone has turned out, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: A lot of well, them look in anyway. the
1: They look the same to me. Yeah. Hey, what do I know? That's true. That's the benefit that's one of the things when you live like in a ta- when 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 you still live in the town, you know, where you went to high school and you you, you, you know like you see everyone and their same, either people move on or the people that don't, they kind of just stay, stay static, you know. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Speaking well, of uh, little small connections, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just uh, said goodbye to my half sister Autumn, who came up to uh, visit with her uh, boyfriend. You have a good he week. He did a uh, a bike race in uh, Sarnia, and then uh, early this week, and so then he they flew up here for only a, only an hour's flight away from from Sarnia, of course. And mm-hmm. they stayed up here for uh, up up until early tomorrow morning. Sorry, this morning.
0: Did they stay? My in My perception place? of
1: time is skewed right now. They stay with you guys, did they? They did. Very nice. Yeah, it, was, it was a nice little. It was a short time, but it was a sweet time. Oh, well, those are good times, man. Yeah. And Autumn's uh, boyfriend, incidentally, uh, he's Scottish. Is he? Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, born in Scotland and moved to Ontario, like sorry, to Canada uh, back in when he was about eleven years old or so. And he doesn't have a very thick brogue or anything, but you can kind of sense it. Mm-hmm. But when he goes back there, he says it just comes on full tilt. Mm, cool. Glaswegian. I, is he? Is that where he's from, yeah? Yes. Oh, well, you could
0: you could tell. It's funny, you know, like, Glasgow's got such a dynamic character. There's all kinds of accents kicking around up there. But the strong Glaswegian accent is easy to pick out in the crowd.
1: Now, we're kind of planning this big kind of... Uh, uh, well, it could be a road trip, it could be a plane trip, but it'll be anyway. It'll be a very educational, emotional journey back to Belgium and Normandy mm-hmm. uh, for us uh, coming up in April. And I was thinking though, since we're going to be, I'm going to be at least we'll be in Scotland for a bit before we leave. If we if we possibly the idea of going to Edinburgh and maybe seeing, you know, uh, I think there's isn't there isn't there something there with Sir Arthur Conan? Doyle?
0: Oh yeah, there's there's a lot of Doyle sites up there. Sure, yeah, we can uh, we we can should, take, we we take a trip up like, there.
1: Yeah, I, I think it would be uh, worth worth it. Maybe a live podcast.
0: Well, maybe we'll see, well, or, I think, or, I a think...
1: pre-recorded, or a pre recorded <laughs> or a pre or a pre recorded excerpt and then that will be included <laughs> into the podcast afterwards.
0: That is a great idea. I, I can see I can see me taking my uh, my voice recorder everywhere we go, but I uh, don't know about a live podcast from the streets of Edinburgh. But who knows? You know. Uh, it, The world is your oyster, Josh. Get over here first and the rest takes care of itself.
1: Aye.
0: Anyway, look, uh, yeah, four stories. This is episode nine. After today, we are only going to have two stories left to discuss in the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. This is exciting because the last two stories are um, quite big ones. The Naval Treaty is the longest of the short stories from mm-hmm. at least what I understand. The longest one story of the most stories. famous
1: stories, too, from, from what I understand as well.
0: Yeah, and then we've got the final problem, which is, which of course, is... the one wherein Holmes supposedly dies, or dies for the first time. Yes. Um, yeah, so and those are two big stories, and that had something to do with why we decided to go four today and two next time.
1: Yeah, well, I know for a fact, too, is that um, the first appearance of Moriarty... Uh, is actually Holmes's last appearance, so to speak, as well. So it'll be interesting. It's, I think it's interesting so far that you know, for a villain that has been so right through popular culture on Sherlock Holmes, yeah, he he hasn't even appeared yet in all the stories we read so far.
0: That's remarkable because you know we're nearing, if we're not at twenty short stories. I think this is us doing twenty twenty-one. I, I can't remember now, but. And we got two novels in. Yeah, we have gone through a lot of the canon, and we haven't yet met Moriarty. So,
1: yeah, it's, exci- it's exciting times. For sure. So I think we should dig into the uh, the Rygate puzzle, as we will. I call it, or yeah. as, the, as the Americans call it.
0: Listen, pal, just before we do that, um, this is not really a regular feature of our show, but I think I want to share a little bit of Sherlock news with you, if I can. Um, first thing, I had my anniversary there a couple days ago. And one of the things that Sarah got me, she got me this lovely book. She knows I've been looking for something um, that contained pre-war photographs of uh, the city of London so that I could kind of historically have a better understanding of what parts of the city were destroyed during the air raids and and what parts were existent in the time of the late Victorian period. and you know I, right. I, was, I just want to have a picture in my mind of that, but um anyway, Sarah went away and got me a book uh, on the marketplace. Sherlock Holmes in London, a photographic record of Conan Doyle's stories written by Charles Viney. I believe that's hmm. how you pronounce his name, V-I-N-E-Y. Anyway, it's an illustrated guide um, that kind of takes you through all of the stories that Sherlock Holmes wrote, but not to say anything about the stories, really, just uh, photographs, contemporary photographs so of the time, uh, all between 1890, sorry, 1879 and 1914. All these photographs are from those those years. And wow. um, it's it's really really cool. Just looking through it, you know, because you can picture. Because if you've been to London, you've seen Pall Mall, you've been to Victoria Street, and all this. But to see it back then is is really cool. And these locations kind of come to life. So that was a really cool gift. But actually, that's not Restore. the uh, that's not the news. The news is this, right? So I read an article <clears throat> a couple of days ago, which made me think of something you had said. Do you remember what you said at the beginning of this series, the outset of our time on Lighting the Pipes? What you said was your first introduction to Sherlock Holmes. I remember, which is why I'm quizzing you. Oh, the Great Mouse Detective. The Great Mouse Detective. That's right. Okay, cool. So here's what I read, okay? Sherlock Holmes, as influenced in that or influenced that, that animated film, is heavily responsible for saving Disney Studios. And here's why. Michael Eisner took over Disney uh, in 1984, okay? Yes. And at that point, they had not really a hit, an animated hit for a while. Like the days of Cinderella and the days of Snow White were, were in the past. And, you know, we are kind of slogging through things like the Aristocats and stuff like that, right? So yeah. the animated films weren't that great. Eisner wanted to take the film, uh, the, the film side of Disney and do... Um, real-life film, right? He wanted to exclusively move in that direction, but agreed to continue production on an investment in The Great Mouse Detective. That was going to be the film uh, which kind of dictated whether or not the animated arm of Disney Studios maintained its hold.
2: Hmm.
0: Anyway, the success of that film secured Disney... Uh, enough confidence in rolling out production, early production on films like Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. a Little Mermaid particularly. And so if The Great Mouse Detective hadn't really taken off at the box office and with families, there's a good chance that all these films that we know and love now, like The Lion King and all of these you know, ones I just mentioned, wouldn't, wouldn't even have been made, which is really cool if you stop and think about a big picture.
1: It is. It is kind of a huge big picture. Yeah, the very fact that the great era of Disney animation, the 90s, which kind of revitalized 2D animation, you know, it was kind of its last big hurrah, came from The Great Mouse Detective success. That's yeah. really great to know. Because you cool. recall, prior to The Great Mouse Detective, which I think was, what, 86 or 87?
0: Uh, a little earlier than that, I think it was 85,
1: 84. 85. But... Remember, too, that Spielberg also produced that, I think it was the Robert Zemeckis one, wasn't it? Um, American American Tale. American Tale but I was also thinking of uh, a live-action film that he that was done too. Uh, the young Sh- the, Avengers, the Avengers of Young Sherlock Holmes or something like oh, that, yeah. which wasn't a very great film, but uh, they there was something of influencing on that. But yeah, because if you think about it, before like Great Mouse Detective, a lot of like the late 70s, 80s Disney stuff, like I don't know, Oliver and Company and the Rescuers, and mm-hmm. they were they weren't aristocrats as you were saying, they weren't great fare at all. No, they weren't. Uh,
0: 86, by the way, you were right. 1986 for The Great Mouse Detective.
1: Okay, okay, great. Anyway. Interesting now, too, the Disney legacy continues on, you know, in in, in many ways because uh, it's so huge now and uh, uh, that, uh, yeah, all because The Great Mouse Detective and uh, Sherlock Holmes. Wow. Yeah,
0: it's cool. It's just a cool little story. So look, um, oh, there's another little story, too, but I'll give you your own time to look into that. It has to do with a play that's recently been unearthed. Uh, written by J.M. Barry, who of course wrote Peter Pan, um, wherein he spoofs Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes character. And hmm. the reason that's interesting is because Conan Doyle and Barry were good friends um, and contemporaries. But the other additional interesting level is that J.M. Barry and Peter Pan have a link to the school that I teach in because he was a student at Dumfries Academy. And he used, he used to play in the gardens behind the, uh, behind the school. And there's a home there now that they're, they're working, the home that he lived in when he was there, that they're, they're trying to preserve into a museum. They've been trying to get the grants to do it for a while. And figures like Joanna Lumley have been you know patrons of, of the, the site and stuff. But it's cool. So there's this other, lots of Sherlock news. And I'm wondering if maybe, although it's not really part of our shtick, because we're very much about the stories and that's kind of what we yeah. want to focus on, maybe we you know, could bring in a little news
1: Every once in a while, we still got a long way to go on this. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Jo now Joanna Lumley, she was a Bond girl, right?
0: Yeah, she was. Yeah.
1: Briefly in on her Majesty's Secret Service.
0: Very briefly, yet you know she's she's milked that for all it's worth.
1: Yeah, well, abfab, right? So.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. Anyway, look, that's enough of the pleasantries and the introductions. Do you want to uh, reiterate for our listeners and indeed ourselves what the- our Pipes acronym is all about and why we use it?
1: Pipes. P principles I investigation P perpetrators or perpetrator E environs S supporting players And we give these a mark out of five that helps give us
0: a scoring index for discussion and for review and at the end of all this, great fun, we're going to do a ranking. We might not rank all 56. I can see us doing a top 10 list, really, because I don't think we're going to be able to discern the differences between the minutiae between 52 and 54, for example. But um, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll do something cool like that, and our scoring index will be really helpful to, um, to get us on the way. I should say, uh, on that note, we're just coming from... The Adventure of the Stockbroker's Clerk, The Glorious Scott, and The Musgrave Ritual, which were stories that got progressively better in our scoring. Mm-hmm. Um, we finished off The Musgrave Ritual. We both really liked that story, a 20.5 for me and a 20 for you. So it'll be cool to see see what we make of these. Um, I Interesting
1: got to... point on The uh, Musgrave Ritual.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I watched the final episode because I heard that they're not making any more of BBC Sherlock.
0: Okay, so yeah.
1: And they include aspects of the musgrave ritual like the storyline or just like the idea of the mystery of of, the, of what the ritual is or something very cool in the finale it's not the exact case of course because they have grander arcs to tie up yeah but it was i thought it was a really cool nod to the uh, story so for anyone those who are watching bbc sherlock and read the musgrave ritual well uh, you probably saw that connection cool
0: i haven't seen it yet i've been you know dipping my, friend, it in and my out.
1: friend next to me on the couch was like. What are you talking about? And I'm like, never mind. <laughs> yeah, he didn't read them. Anyway. Exactly. I'll,
0: I'll get there. I'm going through them sequentially as I do my reading, which I know is kind of stupid because the way they use the story threads, but nevertheless, I don't want too many spoilers in the, in, in the film,
1: or sorry, oh, yeah. in the TV it, series. It, it's, it's a smart thing to do, for sure. I find that, though, they kind of incorporate all, this, all, the, ass, all the different faucets of every story into one, I guess, n- condensed narrative, mm-hmm, in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not like the Jeremy Bread adventures where it's like, you know, it's like point-blank adaptations of each story. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. No, I get you. It's, yeah, it's more of like a, a mythos more so than anything. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, look, pal, I'm going to turn it over to you now, because uh, you're going to start talking about the Rygate Squires, or indeed the Rygate puzzle. Puzzle. Um, but I've got a little sound clip that I thought you might like. Uh, huh. The This is from the, um, uh, the St. Mary's Church in Rygate. There's a a great collection of church bells there, and the Surrey Association of Bell Ringers have introduced and are performing the, what's it called, the Grand, Sar- Grand Caters. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll play this for you and uh, see what you think.
2: Mm.
1: Travel west along the A25 and we come to Raggett and the church of St. Mary Magdalene. The Grand Sarcators, we hear, captures the distinctive sound of these ten bells,
0: so it's it's about two minutes of repetitive bell ringing like that. Uh, I'm not I'm not going to play it all for you, but I thought it was cool that the church of Saint Mary's from Rygate uh, is indeed uh, featured there on that little little clip. So you can imagine. The sound on a Sunday as Holmes is uh, walking around the estate.
1: Yeah, or well, far off in in the uh, distance, anyways, or at yeah, least when know, he arrives in the town to the uh, Colonel's place, you know, and and perhaps you know after after dinner, where they're smoking their cigars in the armory, you could hear the bells hearing in the going in the distance. Anyway, pal, over to you. Let's get this episode started. I'm excited. All right. So the rygate Square puzzle, as it's called in the American editions, or the Reigate Squire, as it's called in the original Strand publications, and forevermore in the English version, uh, the British version I should say, uh, was published in 1893. I could actually only find out that it was published in 1893, I could not get the actual month. Interesting enough.
0: Yeah, I got it here, June 1893 in the Strand, June 17th in Harper's Weekly, but as you say, Uh, it was titled the Reigate Puzzle
1: publishing the same month in in in, in uh, England and in the states, eh?
0: Yeah, that's that kind of seems the pattern that we've had for the last couple of uh, shows now. Um, mm-hmm. seems like the memoirs, unlike The Adventures, were more on par with the British publication in
1: America. And having different type titles uh, for, for in, you know to to show how it was in, in concert with that demographic too. Yeah. All right. So, uh, the Rygate puzzle, or squire, whatever you're going to call it here. So, in this exciting episode of John Watson, M.D., our delectable doctor returns from France with a, man, uh, returns from France with a man-flu-inflicted Holmes. Hmm. Uh, basically, uh, having just cracked a high-profile case, high case in which he burned the midnight oil to the very end, uh, Resulting in a very physically and mentally exhausted Sherlock, which seems to me like Baron Mopertius, uh, an aristocratic swindler and like a Parisian setting. Where is this story in the chronology? Can I read this? Yeah, exactly. It sounded pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, Baron Mopertius. He sounds like a real prick. Um... (laughs) Yeah. So Holmes is out of it, obviously, and he's so out of it that he can't even answer all his fan mail, i.e. all the telegrams that are coming in. And, uh, and, and, and Holmes and Watson brings him back from, finds him in the Hotel Dulong in, in Lyons and brings him all the way back to England to, re, to recuperate. Feeling rather pooped himself, Watson takes up an offer to visit his old colleague, Colonel Hayter. It appears that Watson's comrade slash patient is a fanboy of our, of our inestimable hero as well. So they grab a train out to Surrey and where they embark to regate to Colonel Hater's Airbnb. <laughs> Watson is keen on Sherlock recovering from his exhaustion and blackest depression. But Nanny Watson is soon disappointed when Hater triggers Murphy's Law by mentioning the break-in at Old Acton's house. Which in turn leads to the butler spoiling breakfast the next morning with some juicy gossip. Murder. Charles Kerwin, servant to the JP Justice of the Peace Cunningham, has been shot and killed. Watson feeling like Michael Corleone in Godfather Part Two shares with Holmes his uh, own rendition of Pacino's "Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in." It's fate, John. Face it. For quicker than you can say "Atropos," local Inspector Forrester has popped up with this with a cert with a serving of "Say, we hear you have Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Mother fracking Holmes under your roof. Can <laughs> can we borrow him for for a wee smidge?" Evidently, our man Forrester lacks the innate crime-solving finesse required to uh, fake theatrical seizures-slash-fainting-slash-clumsiness to bring down Kerwin's murderer. But Sherlock, and grudgingly Watson, are game. So the Vic, William Kerwin, was shot just outside of the front door of old man Cunningham's house, and his son Alec uh, also is in attendance. Young, younger Cunningham says he had heard someone break in break in through the pantry window, and William, dear old William, that loyal servant, accosted the burglar outside where a violent struggle ensued. A gun went off, and Kerwin was fatally wounded. ACD, Arthur Conan Doyle, learns little, leaves little breadcrumbs for us that only a select few of us would catch on. So I'll leave the grittier details of the case to to, to your, you know, your reading experience. Uh, as needless to say, this looks like a job for a friendly neighborhood detective man. Local PD and anyone else with an opinion lay the blame at the scene at, at, at the same thieves that busted into the old man Acton's house and who stole some really, really lame items. So they figured that this guy tried to break into the Cunningham residence and therefore was uh, dispatched, uh, therefore dispatched poor William, interfering with his nefarious deed. It's the country life, right? Holmes, as always, has his own ideas, which he which he. To our complete shock, with and, of course, from withholds all this data from everyone else. One of the main clues is is, that, um, is the torn scrap of paper clothed, uh, that's clutched in Kerwin's dead hand. Sherlock insists on seeing the Cunningham estate. Cunningham the Elder and young Alec greet Holmes, Watson, and Forster at the kitchen entrance. Alex is a smug little punk who can't help snicker as Holmes uh, launches Operation High School drama play. And it is cringeworthy <laughs> as that description warrants. First, Holmes falls over from exhaustion. This allows him to get into get, get get allows him to be dragged into the house, into a chair in the kitchen, where he may recover. Then he offers to write up a reward and, and notice and and to notice and forget a crucial in, a, a reward notice. I'm sorry. Sometimes I can't read my own writing. Sometimes I must have a slight aside here. I am bereft of a computer at the present moment, so all of my summaries and my notes are all in pen. So I'm uh, sometimes I have to it take a half minute to interpret my own Sanskrit. Understood. Excellent. So he offers a reward. So he he writes up a, a reward n- notice and and sets it so that uh, so that the, so that the letter twelve would be written on this piece of paper. Now, apparently this is the wrong time that what that was m- mentioned. A quarter to 12 is was what uh, is said on the piece of paper uh, that Holmes writes down, but it was 12 that was written on the piece of paper in Kerwin's hand. This allows uh, old Cunningham to kindly correct Holmes' mistake and for Watson to kind of shake his head at at how his his good friend seems to be out of it. This, of course, is all part of Operation High School drama play.
0: Yeah, but I, I'm going to put my hand up here. Um, yes, sir. I'm going to put my hand up
1: here. I We're, think we, that we are I, in high school after all.
0: <laughs> I think that uh, Conan Doyle does a good job of laying the context for Holmes being overworked, and I think that's really clever on his part because. Oh, he why, does. I mean, wh- why would I necessarily think I should have you know presumed that he he's making this up? But he's pretty believable in these scenes, like where he's diving and you know, I, I like I like what he does here. So while while well, you're right to say that it's all a stage performance, um, I'm not, as I read, immediately um, doubting what's going on.
1: Oh, no, not at all. I'm just being a little bit quasi-satirical here is all. I know, I know. I just, you know. I know. I understand. I understand. But so anyways, Alec, you know, he's wearing a shit-eating grin this whole time, you know, like mocking Holmes as he goes along. Watson is kind of just like admonishing, hum and hawing about Sherlock's weak performance. So the final phase of this perfo- of the theatrical piece occurs in one of the bedrooms where Holmes knocks over a tray of oranges and a pitcher of water. Naturally, he blames Watson, uh, and, and 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 Watson, I guess, in the same kind of manner of throwing the cherry bomb, uh, accepts responsibility as well.
0: Yeah, I, I guess he does. He kind of seems to know something's going on at that point. But. Yeah.
1: Yeah, especially at the moment where Holmes has bolted, the Cunninghams pursue and proceed to then try to murder Holmes in the same house. (laughs) Uh, Cats out of the bag, the cats out of the bag. Nay, the same floor currently occupied by the local D.I. and Watson. (laughs) Holmes manages to scream bloody murder. Well, which being descriptive is quite efficient if you think about it. You know, like, you know, people say, help, murder. I mean, nowadays, like, if someone points a gun at you, do you scream out in the alley, murder, help. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I just like the articulateness of the British back then, I guess. Caught in the act of attempting to murder Sherlock Holmes, Forrester places them under arrest. But what of poor William Kerwin? Holmes reveals to all and sundry that the the, uh, torn paper was the key ingredient in solving the case. Using handwriting as forensic evidence, Holmes comes to the conclusion that the note was written by the killers, by the killers, each one writing part of the note uh, to create a different form of uh, form that that were they were trying to kind of, I guess, uh, not recognize the handwriting of one or the other. Another clue was that the, uh, was that the, Blackened powder around uh, the wound where Curran was shot uh, was not uh, in, in in a pattern that would that would indicate that he was shot uh, that he was shot at close range in a struggle that he was in fact shot from uh, several feet away directly, thus contradicting the psycho Alex's testimony. So while Alex sits in jail, you know, waiting for and his father as well, waiting for an opportunity to go all Hannibal Lecter. I mean, the guy basically tried to his he strangles. He tries to strangle Holmes. He gets caught in the act. That doesn't stop Alec, though. He pulls his gun out, and luckily the DI knocks it away. Alex then tries to blow his own brains out. The DI knocks it away. <laughs> Alex is a bit touched. Actually, I wouldn't even put him on Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter would probably eat this guy for being rude. He probably uh, would, yeah. Yeah. Everyone learns that Holmes faked to f- fake to faint and he and he caused a disturbance deliberately so he could a enter the house and b gain access to Alex smoking uh smoking room where to get grabbing a hold of his uh of, of his uh um, of his uh e- e- evening coat sorry morning jacket he uh finds a smoking gun the other half of the note in in his gown so with with old Acton present, it is uh, made plain that the robbery the night before was the Cunningham's trying to steal crucial documents from Acton that would allow them the upper hand of the land claim dispute between the both of them. Mm-hmm. Kerwin had to, had had uh, talked his uh, had tri- talked his way into uh, into. Sorry, uh, <laughs> there's my Sanskrit again. Kerwin had tailed his masters and his vicious son to, to the household during the robbery and then threatened to extort the Cunninghams. Well, that sealed his fate. A letter writ by both men is passed along to get Kerwin to meet, to meet them at the same time under the pretense of possibly having a secret meet with this Annie Morrison. This meet then set up his own assassination. And, of course, Holmes wrote down the time, which was supposed to be quarter to 12. He wrote it down as simply, uh, he wrote a different time period and just simply wanted the letter to be changed, the notice that he wrote up for the reward under that pretense, so that he would notice that it was the, it was 12, and that that and that it would be corrected, uh, and he would be able to see how Cunningham wrote the letter 12 down, wrote, wrote the, the the word 12 down. So another smoking gun, another smoked pipe. Kerwin set up for a fall and soon avenged by our exhausted detective. And that is, uh, in in essence, the Regate Squire.
0: Nice work. Yeah, I like this story. I like Holmes and Watson in it, if you want to jump straight to the pipes now. Um, oh, did you find anything on our, our Goodread friends? Did they have anything to say?
1: Oh, yes, our Goodread friends. Yes, I found a couple of things on there. Thanks for reminding me. I think we just dove right into the fray there, didn't we?
0: That's all right. We got four stories to do. The pace is good.
1: Yeah, I think getting a couple of quotes that people thought of the story after the outline I think might uh, might provide some more context to some of the quotes, too, if you think about it. In a Boy, we definitely... Uh rely on computers too much these days.
0: Well, save, save it till the end. I mean, if, if, you, oh, don't no, have, no, if no. you don't have it to hand.
1: No, no, not at all. Just a moment here. Well, the same gentleman who said that it was uh, good for a cuppa, uh, he also made his comment there. I think he just copy and pastes them on everyone personally.
0: Yep. Well, yeah, I think so too. By gentleman, you mean
1: lady. Oh yeah, this was a lady, yeah, too. On this one, that's, that's right. Princess somebody here. I don't want to give away her name, you know, in case of reprisal. Ah, well, eh, Cora, the Tea Party princess. Five words, perfect length for a kappa. Yeah,
0: that's 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 at the beginning of all of
1: these. Yeah.
0: I don't think this it is a perfect story length is for Brilliant, a
1: cuppa. Says, says 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 Roberto. Watson takes Holmes to a friend's estate near Regate in Surrey to rest after a rather strenuous case in France. Holmes finds that his services are needed here, but he also finds that his recent illness service him well. His host is Coat, and that's all. All right? <laughs> one person gave it three and a half stars. This one seemed to go by a lot quicker than some of the others, but it was still pretty enjoyable. The criminals in these stories are quite clever at times. Yes, they are, Michelle. Yes, they are indeed. Yeah, unless they're enough.
0: unless they're trying to murder Sherlock Holmes or run away from the detective and uh, the, the police <laughs> inspector.
1: Yeah, that's really clever. Uh, yeah, that is, that's uh, that's desperation if anything, and, and desperation is what the situation that got them in the first place. True. When Watson prescribes a restful retreat, uh, uh, more description. Everyone seems that reviews nowadays are getting really disappointed with Goodread. They're just like mini synopsises. Well, but look, um, I mean, overall, it seems, yeah. it seems like a lot of people like like the story. Like it, it's got, a, it, I, I think it has a lot of good good elements in there. It's kind of fun and menacing and crazy at the same time, and uh, it's just well put together. So you know, I, I think a lot of people liked it.
0: Well, let's get into it uh, in a little bit more detail than the surgery like of Goodreads. Yeah, uh, let's light the pipes. Uh, oh yeah, shit, light the pipes. Now who's unprepared? Hey. <laughs> Uh, apologies to uh, to all of our our excited listeners. Anyway,
1: sometimes you just you just can't find that right tobacco leaf. I understand. You can't. You can't.
0: Anyway, we'll get we'll get the pipes lit in a minute. Um, I just want to start by by saying that I like I like Holmes and Watson in this story a lot. Um, I think they're they're really good. I particularly like the way that Conan Doyle sets his story up. Like there are some stories in these in these works that stand out as being pieces that have been sculpted and structured. Like there's a lot of not foreshadowing, but set up by Watson here at the beginning, like where he talks about um, this weakness of Holmes, like his illness. Nevertheless, In an indirect fashion to a singular, uh, sorry, gives my friend an opportunity of demonstrating the value of a fresh weapon among the many with which he waged his lifelong battle against crime. And he says that in the introductory paragraph and what he's referring to, and we can talk about it a little bit more when we get to the investigation. But what he's referring to is, is, of course, this handwriting technique. And... That was a very new thing on the scene at the time of writing. I've got a couple of notes that I learned uh, through my annotations that I'd like to share when we get there. What do you but, call
1: that, s- s- stenography?
0: Well, I, I I don't know. I just think you call it handwriting analysis. Like I don't know chromato- yeah. chromatography is like the study of ink and uh, kind of how you know pressure and stuff on writing and or maybe it's it not reminds maybe it's me just of the that uh,
1: X Files episode Young at Heart from season one where. Uh, John Barnett, this old nemesis of Mulder's, who has now has a salamander yeah, hand, yeah, 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 is writing all these letters and whatnot to 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 Mulder, all these little haikus. And there was, there was like this. I think there was a woman uh, in that episode who, who works for the FBI, and she works for she does all the handwriting analysis, and mm-hmm. she was she was pretty cool. I think they showed her like in an episode or another episode afterwards or something. Oh, they
0: probably did, yeah.
1: Yeah. Anyway
0: uh yeah back to the point uh i like i like the perpetrators in this story a lot or sorry the principles i think they work really well together um I know that you were just being sarcastic and talking about the high school drama and everything, and there is definitely theatrics here at work, but I think that's really clever. Like Holmes is at, for me, so far in the series, I think he's at his near best here. He's acting, he's laughing, he's using his illness to his advantage because he knows that these guys ultimately, even though they fooled the people around them, they're not going to fool him. And in retrospect, at the end of the story, you can see how he's using this um, this illness to try to you know create a sense of false security, right? And yes. w- Watson, I was really impressed with in the story, not because he does a hell of a lot, but because this is one of the first stories I find where um, Watson gives us compassion that we we take as being quite authentic. Like he's not just observing the wonders of his friend. He's he's quite worried mm. about him here. And yes. I, feel, I feel like there's there's some richness in their relationship that makes them nice uh, as <clears throat> as partners, because Holmes doesn't doesn't really pay much into it. But. He knows that Watson's worried about him, and he's kind of looking out for him a bit. And there's nice, <coughs> pardon me. There's nice phrases in here that um, stand out, you know, for for comp- to, to satisfy that for me at least as a reader. I, I like I like Watson here.
1: Well, especially in in the um, in the moment where uh, he makes the mistake on on uh, the uh, note with the um the, the, with the um correct with the incorrect time, right? because mm-hmm. he even though it seems like a kind of a minor thing to us it's a minor correction you know like that any any other of like the the di's would probably have done themselves uh or maybe not uh you can just see that like when it happens that like watson like feels for him you know going like oh man this is going to discombobulate him completely you know and yeah and that, and that he, really works he kind of underestimates holmes is uh, holmes having a, a, a like i think his his fortitude you know in terms of his ego mm-hmm. but uh and Holmes, I think, even plays into that as well to help convince uses Watson in that way to help convince the Cunningham's of his yeah, ruse.
0: I agree, and that also helps convince the reader because by this point, whether you're a contemporary reader at the time of publication or whether you're reading them as we are, by by this time we've learned to trust Watson and his observations,
1: and he's worried about Holmes, and so we are too. Exactly, and we're like, what's going on in this house? Like, what, what Holmes is, is like is not very useful at all. Like. What if these guys are the suspects and he just doesn't realize it, or he does realize it, and but he's but he's he's just I don't know. It's just it, it's a, it, it creates a very tense situation. Mm-hmm. It does, and
0: I also like how he sets up. And again, I know I'm kind of touching on investigation too, but I also like how Conan Doyle talks uh, in this story about um, Holmes and his notoriety now, or rather his popularity internationally. Um, you know, we're, we're told that. Um, <clears throat> When he enters a room he's ank- literally ankle deep in congratulatory telegrams his room was you know literally filled with these telegrams that spoke of his success and all kinds of people now are, are quite excited about him and, and I'm starting to think about it from an autobiographical point of view or maybe like an uh, art imitating life <laughs> is, is this Conan Doyle saying something about you know how he is, is getting tired under the weight of the public's appreciation for this character like is there something going on here like that do you think
1: it could be yeah he himself is exhausted with with the character
0: (laughs) well we're only a few away from when he tries to kill him off so there could be could be something in that you know Um, yes could be but i'd like to share this with you as well it was an interesting note um about this ankle deep um telegram yeah my annotations here uh this is only the sort of thing that a super fan could could come up with right
1: Yes, of course.
0: And we are not that. We are, we're lovers, not experts. But uh, here's, yes. what the ec- here's what an expert Carol Woods says. Carol Woods calculates that to fill the average French hotel room to ankle deep would require 10,741 crumpled telegrams. And she muses that Holmes' illness was caused not entirely by the exertions put forth in the Netherlands Sumatra case, but also by the telegram crumpling itself, which would have required slightly over 179 hours of opening, reading, crumpling, and tossing.
1: <laughs> Three dot of crumpling and, and tossing in his prostrate state.
0: That's right, yeah. So that just weakened him further. Anyway, I w- look, buddy, I'll, I'll just put it out there, okay? I thought Holmes and Watson were good in this. Holmes is great. I, I really liked his uh, he, the way he used that handwriting. And I'll talk about that a little bit later, the analysis there. I thought his performance mm-hmm. was good. There were a couple of, and enough, I felt, Looks at Watson, kind of knowing looks to encourage and and you know uh, reassure his his friend that this is the right thing to do, particularly when the 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 um, the bowl of oranges or the bowl of water and the oranges goes over. Like I liked the way he was working very cleverly in here, and I like the way he uncovered the truth. And yeah. I got I got very little criticism here. I went four point five. That's that's what I did, and I know that's a high mm-hmm. mark, but I
1: I really enjoyed reading them here in this story. <laughs> Okay, I, I I even though I was quasi satirical about the whole thing, the feints and stuff like that, I just I guess there was a part where I just found it kind of like just a bit unbecoming of, of him a little bit. But so that to me, like that whole thing about him like faking and stuff to you know, but I mean he, he what he did was he was was resourceful of him, and that's the whole lesson about it, right? The yeah. handwriting yeah. lesson. Holmes's revelation at the very beginning uh, was great work because he sees the letter and the first thing he does uh, on the case is he sees the letter in Kerwin's hand and he reads it and he knew exactly then and there what to do in that situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He saw two, he saw two, two forms of handwriting on that piece of paper. So that, uh, and he was able to judge that it was uh, probably uh, of of a blood relation. So the Cunninghams are ultimately suspect already in that, you know, in that way. Uh, And then, so he just had to basically play his game all the way through. And Holmes leaves that breadcrumb in the very beginning, and it's just for us to find it. And once you read the story, it all makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, and I think so. I think both using, using his physical maladies and his resourcefulness with the handwriting, all of those things put together on top of Watson, you know, almost adorably attached to his friend, traveling um, at his own expenses to, to Leon's to pick him up and bring him home, you know, catching, on each, catching each slip, you know, and feeling it, you know, as if it was painful to Holmes and and Holmes playing that to his own advantage in his own way. It was like kind of like um, unintentional teamwork on both their parts to solve the case. Hmm. Well, unintentional from Watson's side, and then intentional all the way through uh, to Sherlock Holmes's side uh, in his point of view. So even though he was taken along in this particular story, he was a bright spot in the narrative as well. He was, yeah, yeah. So I give a, I give the whole the principles a four.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, what do you think of the investigation then the uh, the working it out the deduction uh, the way the story was written structurally stylistically what do you th- would you like about it
1: Well I'm going to go with my initial feelings towards it um you know while the Beramperius case you know it wets the eager lips the setup of Raygate works well with the narrative even at the nadir of his physical prowess Holmes's mind is still burning both ends of the candle yeah. there is an organic yeah, comes through really clear Yeah it does and there is an organic progression from Leon's to Raygate to The Breakfast and then and then Kerwin's murder. The moment Holmes re- reads a note uh, from Kerwin's hand, as I mentioned in The Principles, because uh, I was talking about his own deductive abilities, has already heard, you know, we, we has already heard about the acton Cunningham dispute. It, all, all those things click together. Uh, we, the reader, identify with Watson and Forster as Holmes stumbles through the case. Uh, a good troll for us all, in a way. Uh, there is a part of me as I said that just finds the faking of the seizures and the distractions as slightly unprofessional but it works with the story so I'm kind of more grown to it and I actually read the story a second time and even though these are my initial impressions which I wanted to keep down here I I appreciated it a lot more in the context of what Holmes was trying to do based all around on that just seeing that letter and how that little seedling is left for us to to grow right Mm -hmm. so I'm I'm going to go for a four as a whole on the investigation, on the story as a whole as well.
0: Right. Right. Great. Well, I went 4.5 again, and uh, I haven't done that since Silver Blaze. I haven't Mm. given a story such a high starting off through the gate. uh, Pardon the pun. Um, (laughs) But but I, again i mean i i love the way that the story is set up i really like the fact that and and listen dude i do agree with what you're saying i can see this being a little below holmes the, the theatrics a little bit unprofessional a little bit a little bit cheap for what we've seen of him in the past but i do I do really strongly feel like this is him being resourceful. He senses his environment yes. and he knows he doesn't have to work as hard with these guys, so he takes something down to a common denominator that's going to get him the success that he wants without jeopardizing his health if indeed he is taxed and tired like I think that that takes an extra level of smartness because you know who you are and you know what you can get away with and and he's really got their number, and so he uses like he uses his his physical performance to to kind of Crack the egg, seal the deal. You know what I mean. And so, yeah.
1: and I he had done it before too. Remember, like he got into that fight, and uh, or he or he got into like the middle of a dispute with the coachman or something in yeah. front of uh, Irene Adler's right. house.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I don't think that this is the best story. Like I don't think that this is the most exciting story. But I find it very difficult to fault because it's tight. It has and yes. follows a simple line. It's very well structured. There's compassion there's excitement there's performance there is deduction the handwriting analysis stuff i absolutely love i think it's really really cool the way that was introduced here i find that the writing in the story is well paced it's It's taught it's it's taught
1: yeah Yeah. it's good meat, meat and potatoes
0: and it's compelling too like let's think about what we get we get murder we got a father and son working together there's this letter writing thing going on we've got burglary handwriting um, we've got a premises search we've got a lot of the stuff that we like in these stories and it is here and it's it's believable plus we've got the character relationship that works um, on, on the note of this handwriting thing I, I'd just like to uh, to share a little bit with you because it really is cool I think um, these are just a couple of the annotations from my Klinger edition yeah so this, this is coming to when Holmes is making or revealing I guess this technique of handwriting um, and here we go By making such a detailed study of the Cunningham's handwriting, Holmes, here investigating in 1887, was both of and ahead of his time, since handwriting analysis was only then developing elsewhere in Europe. is still largely yet unknown in Britain. Interest in handwriting as a window to one's character goes back at least as far as ancient Greece. Aristotle once noted, quote, Just as all the men do not have the same speech sounds, neither do they all have the same writing. End quote. Numerous scholars dabbled in studying handwriting in the early part of the 19th century, but public interest blossomed after Jean Hippolyte Michon, a French or Michon, a French abbot, coined the phrase graphology in the 1870s and published two popular books on the subject. Michon's methodology was rigid by today's standards, assigning specific personality traits to, district, to distinct elements of writing and assuming the absence of such traits in the absence of such elements. It was his student, Jules who adapted a more holistic interpretive approach to Michon's findings and who is credited with fathering the French school of graphology. And I think that's cool seeing as we've got a French connection to this story too. The fact that the handwriting origins, or not the origins, but kind of like the European explosion into the study of this uh, forensic task were French. We've got a little French (laughs) thing going on here in this story. So I think Conan Doyle knows exactly where he's getting this inspiration from
1: yeah yeah and being someone I I, you know he was probably reading and researching it and just keeping this you know off to the side so that he could you use it at some point
0: yeah and the whole idea of there being 23 uh like 23 things that you could that you you could get you know you could deduce from the handwriting um there's a further point on here I think was quite cool too That Holmes was not exaggerating is demonstrated by acclaimed mystery writer John Ball, Jr., who in his essay, The 23 Deductions, provides a full list of the 23 damning inferences that Holmes might have drawn from the Cunningham's note. Ball's points range from the somewhat obvious paper quality, ink quality, paper source, whether the writers of the note were left or right-handed, to the more obscure, whether both writers had used the same ink, the presence or absence of scent, fingernail marks, blotting, any indication that the note had been subject to pocket rubbing. The Ragate Squires is the only case in which Holmes demonstrates his expertise in this and notes David James Trapp he might have spared Violet Hunter from much anxiety if he had applied a graphological a graphological analysis to Jeffro Rucastle's letter to her in the copper beaches that is <laughs> a re- that's a really cool observation to make and yeah i I think that I think that's really neat like to think that the story, although it isn't the most exciting, has this at work. I was I was really compelled by it. I think a four point five. It, I know it feels a little generous because it's a near perfect mark, and it isn't a silver blaze. It isn't a copper beaches, but it's for itself, which is it doesn't pretend to be more than it is. It we got a lot of stuff that works in here and doesn't feel like it's too over crammed, like a couple of these stories have been. I like the way it works. I, I went four point five. Particularly, I think what put me over the edge is the way it's written. I like the structure, the pacing. I think Conan Doyle enjoyed doing this one.
1: Yeah, okay. That's a fair assumption. Sorry, uh, assessment, I should say. Assumption. Now I'm making you think... Uh, reth- now, now I'm challenging your your, 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 your own perspective. Uh, <laughs> Not at all. Right, go ahead. You uh, perpetrators. Let's, I know. Let's move on. As resilient as ever. Uh, so we go to the perpetrators <laughs> here. We got uh, Justice Peace Cunningham. He's a schemer. He's reserved, but he's ruthless. He's polite. He's smooth in his own way, you know, offering to, uh, you know, fix. Oh, by the way, this is twelve, and writing, you know, and correcting that, and and not kind of like, you know, like uh, he, he was just in a very he was in a very cool place, and they seemed to have his head about him before you know he tried to murder Holmes, or or allow Alec to murder Holmes so that he could take the paper you know, from the, from his from his hand. Uh, Alec Cunningham, however, he is a punk from the get-go. He's mocking Holmes, you know, as, you know, you know, and this this helps remind reader sympathy for uh, Sherlock Holmes. Um, the build-up of his menace is well-played, creating attention to what should be comic moments. Like, uh, this is where I think, too, is the, the whole high school play stuff works well, is that it creates a comic uh, dissonance to the menace of what was really going on there, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, I think so too.
1: Yeah, but it, but it's, like you said, it's, it, but it, but it, but it worked in that sense, that tonal dissonance, so that or not not sorry, what's that musical term? Uh, counterpoint. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- that helped you know rise the suspense of those of that of those moments. Uh, the fact that he tried to kill Holmes in a room away from Watson and take out anybody you know who, uh, if he who would try to capture him, you know, it makes them all more of a memorable villain. You know, and it's just the fact that he would kill himself, you know, just because that shows how desperate and what kind of almost like how he's like the superficially a country gentleman, a young country gentleman. But underneath, you know, he's just wild ferocity. You know, it's just like a person suit he wears in 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 a way. Yeah. Um, I like the mind game that kind of goes on. That's kind of going on here that 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 is being implied is that um, Holmes, you know, is trying to make sure that his ruse is working against the Cunninghams. But even then, Alec Cunningham is still like, he they he wants Holmes out of the house, right? And so there's like this mind game going on between the two of them. It's not a subtle one, but there is something there, you know? Mm-hmm. And I thought as perpetrators, the Cunninghams were interesting and I gave them a full four.
0: Okay, cool. Uh, I was a half mark below you. I felt this was, for me at least, um, kind of where things dropped off a bit. I agreed with what you said, by the way. I don't really have a hell of a lot more to add. I just have to say that they didn't... I would like to have seen these guys being a little more clever, uh, at (laughs) least in the way they dealt with Holmes, you know, because the... But, you know, the younger son is going to be a bit more impetuous, going to be a little bit more uh, ballsy, and a little bit more careless. And so it does work, you know. Both Cunningham, younger and older work in the story the idea of trying to save or retain the claim of their state by engaging in a burglary and using the paranoia of the time i think that's quite interesting the way that you know there was burglary going on so they figured well let's let's just get this done and you know people will think it's someone else and that type of thing yeah that that was clever um i do i do think it's i mean i don't know how if, if you caught on this i earlier we've said things about um Conan Doyle maybe not coming up with the most original names for his villains, and here we certainly get that too. Like Cunningham, you know, cunning, conniving, ham pigs. You know, you got conniving pigs. That's kind of yeah. how I. That's kind of how I read it. Like he gives <laughs> us he gives us clues again in the name, um, and we're gonna see that again, yet. But. Um, I don't know. I I just think it would be cool to do a, a like a cross-sectional study of all of his character names and match them to like the characters' motives and situations and see mm-hmm. see if you get matches and green
1: lights this way. It's it's kind of like JK Rowling and how she names her characters.
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. There's something yeah. in that, isn't there? Um yeah. yeah, so I I thought they I mean I agreed with what you said. I'm not going to I'm not going to repeat it. I'm just saying for me, uh I went a half point
1: less than that. Okay, time. that's cool. Yeah. We're, we're getting kind of different vibes from this story. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's refreshing. De- development.
0: Yeah, it is. It's refreshing. Uh, we're liking yeah. similar things, but
1: really liking other
0: things. What about the environs? What, what did you go for here?
1: I, beyond, I really liked Heider's Place. I found uh-huh. the gun room was kind of cool, and the, the the whole idea of them smoking cigars and looking at the, all the different guns he has and how the mention of the pistol drives the plot forward because he mentions about how, like, or oh, I'll bring this upstairs tonight because of the burglaries, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. um, the Queen Anne house, you know, a superficial gentility. Uh, the Queen Anne house belonging to the um, Cunninghams, that's superficial gentility contrasting the crime and the nefarious, desperate occupants. Beyond this, however, I found the environs, uh, they were limited in this tale.
0: Yeah, I agree. They were limited. It's far so I, more it's far more about the actions.
1: Hmm. So, so I gave it a three.
0: Yeah, I gave it a three as well. So we're on par with each other there. Um Again, I have nothing to add, I don't believe. I'm just going to recheck my note here. I was just listening to you. So what did I say? Uh, Yeah, another country estate. I feel like we've seen these, particularly if they're not well described. You know, it's a lot like the one in the barrel coronet, um, which isn't technically a a country estate, but it's, you know, similar type of environment. Lots of stuff going on within and around it, but we don't really get a a great description of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do like though that there's this atmosphere of paranoia going on around. Like I do think that that's cool, the way that plays out. But there isn't anything standout here. Um, that's no. A quote. That's what there's nothing really say.
1: in the environs besides counterpoint to what's going on. You know, in the pleasant surroundings yeah. that yeah. create that, to create atmosphere beyond that.
0: Yeah. So I'm with you there. Uh, let's wrap up then with secondary characters. Uh, I have said that. Uh, the yeah, the Colonel seems like pretty good chat. Um and Inspector Forrester was was you know, he was kind of he, he was kind of Holmes's boy in this one. I like that. You know, he had the he had the hero worship when he introduced himself, but he wasn't yep. too he wasn't too sycophantic and yep. he went he went along with him. He was a trusting man and I kinda liked that. I, I did find it funny though, like every time I read Colonel Hider or hater all i could think of was sergeant slaughter you know the wrestler from the 80s or the like, and i just yeah. i couldn't get it out of my head man i just couldn't get it out of my head like anyway, it doesn't matter but I, I thought his story was interesting how he came under watson's care in afghanistan and then they became friends you know supposedly according to uh clinger's annotations um, supposedly hider is almost the only reputable respectable colonel in the entire holmes canon
1: <laughs> That's true. A lot of the colonels are assholes. Yeah, they to be, end, up, they to end, the end up being
0: perpetrators. But anyway, yes. I I went three and a half. Um, I I I just went three and a half because I didn't feel like mm-hmm. they they serviced a lot more than just being there. Uh, they were interesting, but I I didn't read a lot of them really.
1: Yeah, but I, I would you know. go for I, I would go for three, but I'd like the little extra dimensions to Hader and to Forrester. Forrester, like he seems to be like a young prodigy in his own right. And, he, and he's a man who pays careful attention to details. Hmm. Holmes even praises his astuteness about speaking to the postman in regard to the letter. It is a pleasure to work with you, like, just quote-unquote. I mean, Holmes seems to dig this guy. He wasn't like a typical ferret Lestrade, right? Or, or uh, That's right, yeah. Or a, a yes-man like Gregson or, or someone like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Colonel Hader, he's an intriguing friend of Watson. Nothing more than a retired old soldier. He seems intelligent, but there's not much more than that is fleshed out. So, I never really got a sense of him. Whereas, Acton is a rubber stamp to confirm the details of the case at the end. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, nothing more
1: to say Eight. then? Just a 3.5? 3. 3.5. Well, uh, I got a total
0: score of 19 for the Rygate Squires. And you, my friend, are 18.5. So, I did like this one a touch more than you. But, you know, it's it's... It's a nose, instant replay, photo finish at the, uh, at the end of the line, really. There's not much in it.
1: In a, way, it's, it's, it's in a way, like even though we're trying to be like objective in our analysis, the differences, I think, in this story are more subjective than objective.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's a good, a good place for us to finish with that one. Uh, we got musical selections, though, my friend. Uh, behind door number one or door number two, what do you want to go for?
1: I'll go for door number one.
0: Okay, door number one. Well, here's the thing, right? A couple of times or in the past, I've matched things thematically. Uh, sometimes I've matched things to characters' names. You know, I've got a lot of variety here with our music. And today, I've done something a little bit more holistic. Uh, I've selected a track from a lesser-known John Williams score from the 80s, Heart Beeps, about robots that fall in love and do all kinds of nonsense. It's a really shit film, but it's, it's a pretty cool score. But this track is called Crime Buster. And although the track represents a robot that's kind of sent out to get these other robots, um, and he's kind of a villain, like a light villain, the The track works really well, I think, if you think of Holmes playing, being ill, not really at his best, and so he nurtures an environment where he can you know, find these guys out, the Cunninghams. I think Holmes is on top form, tripping around, trusting his instincts, reading the handwriting into the environment. So Crime Buster, um, as a, you know, a grand stroke, I think, fits this story really well because that's what he does. He busts up crime, and, uh, and we get it here. So I hope you enjoy. Crime Buster from Heartbeeps by John Williams. <laughs> a little bit too chirpy for this story, or do you think it fits well?
1: Uh, No, I think it kind of gives a little bit of a... It gives gives the aura of of an exciting case and and a little bit of chirpiness, you know, brings a little uh, what's the word, whimsy to the whole exploits of Holmes, you know, uh, with his high school drama play.
0: Yeah, good one, good one. Well, I thought it was interesting, if not for uh, the fact that, you know, it's not a score that you hear very often and we're fans of john williams so whenever we can squeeze in a little piece here and there that's what we're going to do so well done for you to select that one
1: i thank you thank you
0: okay here we go we're doing good time pal we're moving on to the crooked man and the adventure thereof um this could this could apply to so many people in the world josh
1: the crooked man yes yeah well, I well no, it really depends on the semantics, though, of crooked, right? It does. Yes, it does. Uh, well, who is the crooked man in this story? That is the question. Uh,
0: well, that's a question we're going to answer. And if there are no requests from uh, yourself to say anything more about the Rygate squires, we can just move on into
1: it. The we, the puzzle is done. Ragate puzzle. Okay.
0: Well, The Crooked Man. What can I tell you about this one? This story was published in The Strand in July of oh, 2893, according to my notes. But I think that's <laughs> wrong. Uh, 1893. Harper's Weekly, the 8th of July. Uh, and in The Strand Magazine in New York. Kinky little edition there, August of 93. That's, uh, that's that. I'm going to mix things up a bit and give you some good reads before I do my summary. Here are what some folks at Goodreads thought about The Crooked Man. Colin, four out of five. Although the climax was just somewhat short-lived and the solution easily explained, the initial circumstances surrounding the mystery was pure Holmes' goodness. Hmm. Uh, A man by the name of Sherlock Holmes. So who knew? The man himself is here uh, reviewing his own work. (laughs) Two out of five, he says. Although it has a strong beginning... The Crooked Man is one of the least memorable and entertaining of Conan Doyle's original stories. The mystery isn't very compelling, and as such, nor is the resolution. Sherlock Holmes used better grammar in the stories, but I don't know if I agree with that, really. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, who is, this and, impo- who, is this, who is this imposter? I know, really. Uh, Andrew. Moriarty, I bet. Yeah, laying Fake uh, reports. In the media. Andrew, three out of five. I really enjoyed the overall story being told, but there was really no way the reader could have deduced the resolve. Now, I, I, I've never heard resolve used in quite that way, Andrew, but yeah, sure, why not? Uh, Michael, one out of five. For me, this is definitely one of the weaker of the Sherlock Holmes stories. Instead of giving me a sense of completion and satisfaction with how the mystery wraps up, this story has a pretty bad ending that just ruined this story for me. I'm glad you're not in my English class, Michael, because I'd have a chat with you. (laughs) Anyway, that's the opinion of The Crooked Man, a a sample of the opinions of The Crooked Man. I think it got an average of 3.4 or 3.7 out of 5 on Goodreads. Uh, Yeah, take that for what you will. Um, Here we go. Let's talk about it. The Adventure of the Crooked Man. Late one night, a few months after tying the knot, Watson is dozing in front of the fire when Sherlock Holmes rocks up to shoot the shit with his old roommate. Though it's close to midnight, Watson admits his friend and suffers his usual playful deductions, you've been smoking this again, wearing that again, stuffing <laughs> tissues up your arms again like a dirt bag, and so on, before getting down to business. Oblivious to the social cues all around him, Sherlock blasts through the further pleasantries and dives into the story of his latest case. This caper, he claims, could greatly benefit from Watson's assistance, Intrigued and aroused now, more by his pal's need for help than his hot naked wife in bed upstairs, Watson lights the pipe and listens as Sherlock brings him up to speed. There's been a murder in Aldershot, and on the request of Major Murphy, Holmes has been looking into things to supplement the police investigation. In fact, he's come straight from there. On paper, it looks and sounds pretty open and closed. Colonel James Barkley and his wife Nancy have been arguing heatedly, Shouting and screams were heard by the servants, and when they managed to get into the morning room, for the door was locked from inside, Mrs. Barkley was passed out, the latest predictable victim of... Brain fever! Arthur Conan Doyle's impactful ague of choice for his nervous female characters. Well, Barkley, meanwhile, was dead, lying in a pool of his own blood by the fireplace fender. It appears that a fatal blow had struck him on the head, resulting in a two-inch cut, and a carved wooden club with a bone handle was lying next to him. And though none of the servants could identify it, the Colonel Tonga? had a great yeah, Tonga the Colonel had a great collection of curios from his time abroad, and nobody really doubted that it was from his own collection. All evidence pointed to Nancy Barclay, despite the fact that her marriage had been amicable and respected throughout the town. Indeed, Nancy was not the sort of girl for whom or from whom violent behavior could be expected. Still, the physical evidence seemed to mix comfortably enough with the servants' statements for the police to put wife Nancy atop their list of suspects. Knowing them closely, as he did, and recognizing that a brain-fevered woman would be of no use to him or herself, Major Murphy called in the heavies, Holmes. Sherlock continues with aplomb, his midnight explanation to Watson, revealing that three curiosities stood out to him. First of all, there was no sign of the key that had locked the door from the inside, suggesting that a third person must have been present and taken the key away with him or her. Secondly, one of the servants clearly heard an obscure reference made to the name David, Uh, not known to any of the household. And finally, some unidentified animal footprints, possibly belonging to an otter or a weasel, were found in the room and upon the curtains. Furthermore, Holmes understands that when she left the house on the night of her husband's death, Nancy Barkley was in a cheerful mood. Something must have occurred then in the short time that she was away with Miss Morrison. The two had left for a meeting of the Guilds of St. George, a charity that both were part of that provided clothes for the destitute. Although her statement was taken by the police, Holmes was certain that the key to unlocking the murder rested with Miss Morrison, who was with Nancy immediately before her argument with the Colonel. He explains to Watson that once he found Miss Morrison and convinced her that without her help, Nancy may go to jail for murder, her tongue began to loosen, and for the sake of her friend, trust was betrayed. It turns out that while passing through the quiet thoroughfare of Hudson Street that night, a very disfigured man, crooked if you please, walked past both women but stopped in recognition of Nancy. Addressing her by the name freaked them both out, but this greasy hunchback captured a knowing glance in return from Nancy, and she referred to him as Henry before asking her companion to walk on a little and wait for her. When she returned, Nancy begged her friend not to say anything about the strange encounter to anybody, but was quiet and pale for the rest of the trip. Aware that it wouldn't be too hard to find a crooked man in and around the Hudson Street locale, Holmes started his elder shot search and succeeded in tracking down a certain Henry Wood. A quick chat with his landlady informed Sherlock that he was some sort of conjurer or magician and carried, quote, some creature about with him in a box. For the last two nights, the same amount of nights since his encounter with Nancy and the colonel's death, he's been heard in his room crying and moaning. Oh yeah, and he pays his rent in rupees. Crooked man, magician type, knows the colonel's wife, carries a strange animal, cries at night and secures his accommodation in Indian currency. Got it. With well, this hodgepodge <laughs> of information in hand and the colonel's wife still conveniently in the tepid throes of brain fever, the case might have been solved ages ago if she was conscious, Holmes returned to London and called on Watson to provide a bed for the night and a traveling companion for the morning, so that they return to Aldershot together and meet this Henry Wood for themselves. Of course, the good doctor obliges. Well, they find the crooked man of Hudson Street, all twisted and huddled in his chair before the little fire, guarded and defensive at first like a cornered animal. Holmes's affable logic... Quote, it's every man's business to see justice done, he explains, earns Henry's trust, and within seconds the potholes of the case are filled and paved for our dynamic duo. In and around 1856, during the Indian uprising, Henry Wood and James Barclay were in the same regiment, don't you know? Both chased the same booty, namely that belonging to Nancy DeVoy, the belle of the regiment. The only trouble, for Wood at least was that although sweet Nancy loved him truly, she was also the daughter of the color sergeant, and he was keener to see his daughter marry the brown-nosing officer-bound Barclay than a wild horse like Wood. And Barclay knew, all oh, this only too well. Well, in order to secure his love and prove himself to the would-be, could-be color sergeant daddy, Henry volunteered to sneak behind enemy lines in an effort to reach British General Neal and communicate the severity of the regiment's predicament. Barclay... By then, a sergeant himself drew up a plan for Wood, and the two discussed the route carefully. Wood set off at night and was soon in the hands of the enemy, where he was bound and beaten. When he regained consciousness, he learned that he had actually been set up, served on a dish by Barclay, and that it had all been a trap. Because with Wood out of the way, betrayed into the hands of the enemy, Barclay could claim Nancy for himself, which is exactly what he did, slimy bastard. Well... Hapless Henry remained a prisoner among the rebels for a number of years and his crookedness worsened until they were all murdered by some Darjeeling hill folk, tree planters we presume, or tea planters. Uh, Henry also found himself happy, camper alongside Afghans and Pujabs, before making his way back to England with a veritable retinue of conjuring tricks that he had learned throughout his indigenous adventures. <laughs> he, made it, he made his way back to Aldershot partly because it was close to London and partly because it was full of soldiers, his kind of people. He knew his David Copperfield tricks would earn him a living among those troglodytes. Well, imagine his surprise then when Nancy crossed his path. The shame, the fear, the misunderstanding, the shock after 30 years, the love. Yeah, maybe some of that was still there when they stumbled together on Hudson Street. After all, she thought he was dead and had been a real looker in his day. Unable to interpret his feelings of lost love or properly temper his smoldering rage, Wood admitted to following Nancy home that evening. And upon sight of the argument between her and Barkley in the morning room, he burst in through the garden doors. The shock of seeing his face and twisted body after so many years of taking him for dead ushered a karma heart attack, and Barkley dropped dead like a bull moose, cracking his head on the fireplace fender as he fell. Nancy fainted, of course she did, and in the scuffle, Wood's pet mongoose Teddy escaped from its cage and started to go ape for some bird up the curtain. Is everybody chasing tail in this story? <laughs> uh, Fearing that he'd be doubly fucked over by the Barclays and implicated in a murder, Henry explains that he took the key that Nancy had used to unlock the door from inside and fled through the garden doors, accidentally leaving his stick behind him. Stories shared, Wood gets back to taunting his toothless cobra as Holmes and Watson jump across the street where Major Murphy happily confirms that the medical evidence proved that Barclay died from apoplexy. Quote, you see, it was quite a simple case after all, End quote. And that Nancy would not be legally pursued upon the cooling down of her brain fever. So, Holmes solved the case, but it didn't really matter. He could have stayed at home. Elusive (coughs) Nancy would have professed her innocence with the story, we assume, and the medical inquiry would have cleared her anyway. All Sherlock did was reveal the story for us, the reader. But, in supposed fairness to him, he probably didn't know how much time he had to work with. And as we have seen many times before, going through the motions is as much for Sherlock as solving the crime. As long as he pursues the truth and the details, we feel invested enough to journey with him. I'd like to to think somewhere, though, amongst the lost sketches of Conan Doyle, that there's an epilogue to this story that finds a happier end for Henry Wood with Barclay out of the picture. This has the potential to be the most romantic of all the Sherlock stories, Esmeralda and the Hunchback of Aldershot.
1: (laughs) Well, also, uh, yeah, that's a good point. I like that, the little Hugo reference there. Good stuff.
0: So, what did you think of this one, my friend?
1: Uh, I generally liked The Crooked Man. I, I, You know, I didn't dislike it. I didn't love it. Uh, there was too much of The Sign of Four and other stories in, in here for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, should we light the pipes? Uh,
0: Yeah, let's light the pipes. Um, it's not working. Sound's not working today, so we're just going to have to light it a uh, oh, mono. Uh,
1: all right. All right. I'll take care of mine. You take care of yours, and uh, we'll Thank move you. forward then.
0: Let's light the pipes. Light the pipes. So principles.
1: Yeah, uh, he. <laughs> at first, Holmes comes off as annoying, really annoying at the beginning. There, almost a uh, it to possible, to possibly really being on the spectrum. Uh...
0: <laughs> yeah, he's like completely oblivious of the time, and he just charges into his pal's house.
1: Yeah and that is just like all his observations and stuff like so almost like a savant you know like it's just uh he just keeps going and going and going and going and watson's probably just like just like so t- he's so tolerant i uh, like all i gotta say he uh he, watson can't even get a word in or explain anything to his friend to at the door because holmes has already deduced everything he's going to say or do but the fact that he has come here for watson's help is indicative of how much he, he you know he longs for this platonic compassion com- companionship you know mm-hmm. uh he is on, especially after, you know, just just after tying the knot with Mary, too. Right. So, yeah, that's right. There's some there's some undercurrent there. Uh, Holmes is on the mark in this story, even though even though, like, exposition dumps pretty much resolve everything for him, uh, where he, he could really just have stayed home. Uh, Henry Wood is the one who provides the final clarity on the Barclay case. Watson is, uh, you know, he he's. He's in take along mode in this one, but there's something wonderful about him, you know, being at his friend's side in the story and participating, and it's just again, it kind of carries. There's another bright spot carried off from the from the previous story. So as a whole, I give the principles. There wasn't really as as much no, noticeable faucets of this companionship as there was in the in the Regate Squire, but. There was there was some in this as well as, as it was just it seemed just a little bit more than just a tag along here on the relationship and and what Holmes did and stuff. So I'm gonna go for a 3.5. That's
0: exactly the same mark I gave them 3.5. Um, interesting that we hit there on the same uh, the same target. But yeah, I went 3.5 too. I, I didn't think there was anything um, like I liked the beginning, the repartee at the beginning, and yeah, okay, what what else is Watson gonna do? Right, of course he's gonna let his pal in and deal with what what's happening, but. There's not a lot revealed here, because Holmes doesn't do a lot, and it is a big info dump. But I want, I want to say something about that info dump. Are you happy moving away from the, per, uh, from the principles? Because I don't think we need to, to really go much more on that.
1: No, no, we'll go into the investigation here, I think, because the info dump ties into that.
0: Yeah, I mean, unless, unless you, want to read, you want to read something from the beginning? Um, something about the way they, they, they are kind of entertained, or they
1: entertain yeah. the reader at least? Yeah, I think it's just that whole, um, just a second here. Yeah, so here's Holmes uh, showing up at Watson's door. Mary's gone to bed, and then Holmes shows up on the step. Ah, Watson, said he, I hope that I might not be too late to catch you. My dear fellow, pray come in. "'You look surprised, and no wonder. Relieved too, I fancy. Hm. "'You still smoke the Arcadia mixture of your bachelor days, then. "'There's no mistaking that, fluffy ash, upon your coat. "'It's easy to tell you, tell that you have been accustomed to wear a uniform, Watson. "'You'll never pass as a purebred civilian "'as long as you keep that habit of carrying your handkerchief in your sleeve. "'Could you put me on tonight?' <laughs> "'With pleasure. "'You told me that you had, I had bachelor quarters for one, "'and I see that you have no gentleman visitor at present. "'Your hat stand proclaims as much. "'I shall be delighted if you will stay. "'Then thank you. I'll fill the vacant peg, then.' Sorry to see that you've had the British workman in the house. He's the token of evil. N- not the drains, I hope. No, the gas. Ah. He'll have two nail marks from his boot upon your linoleum just where the light strikes it. No, thank you. I had some supper at Waterloo, but I'll smoke his pipe with, with your pleasure. And so on and so on and so on and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do like the end of that whole exchange where the problem presents features of interest, Said he? I may even say exceptional features of interest. I have already looked at to the matter and have come as I think with inside of my solution if you could accompany me in that last step you might be a considerable service to me I just think here like this whole exchange there's just a little bit of a desperation that, yeah. with, mm. with, with Holmes you know and, and it was leading up to that but there's a little bit of a desperation too I'm also a little bit of preoccupation on Holmes's part and I just think it was just a very realistic di- dynamic and uh, it got me into the story right away and And it seems like the whole case just seemed kind of just out of serendipity, you know?
0: I did like like the desperation, and and you're right to speak of it, because you do sense this sort of... um, And I I don't think this necessarily points to a Spectrum performance, but I I do like this bit here where he's saying to Watson... um, Da, 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 da. one of those instances where the reasoner can produce an effect which seems remarkable to his neighbor because the latter has missed the only one point in the basis of the deduction da, da, da. the same can be said, my dear fellow for the uh, effect of some of these little sketches of yours which is entirely meretricious depending, as it does, on upon your retaining in your own hand some factors in the problem which are never imparted to the reader I mean, that's a comment on writing right there now, yeah. at present, I'm in the position of these same readers, for I hold in this hand several threads of one of the strangest cases which ever perplexed a man's brain, and yet I lack the one or two which are needful to complete my theory. But I'll have them, Watson, I'll have them. His eyes kindled for a slight, and a slight flush sprang into the thin cheeks. And I, I do like that sense of, like, I need to close this for my mind, like, I need to finish this. Yes. And, and I also like the implication made It's a there. compulsion,
1: it's a compulsion, Yeah.
0: Yeah, but the, yeah, that's right. It's a compulsion. That's that's the word. But I like the implication made by Holmes there that by this time Watson had readers for his stories. Yes, like that. That's interesting that Holmes recognizes that Watson has a readership now. He says, "I'm very much like the readers that your writings on me have produced because now I don't have the full story." And so you've got this sort of art imitating life again, which is something we're going to get. It, 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 very it's, meta.
1: Very, very yeah, meta it's very
0: going meta, on here. very meta. Anyway, I think yeah. it's cool. I think that's cool. I like that little uh, interplay. And um, yeah. anyway, uh, do you want to go into investigation and talk to me about what you thought with
1: that? I was going to say, too, I was just on the point of this as part of the investigation, because we're dealing with this story, it also shows here that even though, like, an expo dump, exposition dump is uh, necessary to solve the case here... Uh, It feels, though, that I can kind of look at this whole situation of Holmes coming into Watson's house and and all his observations and whatnot, uh, you know, in the way that he does, because he's already like in detective mode right now. So everywhere he goes, he can't shut it off. Right. And and so he wants to solve this case. So he's compulsive about it already. So when he comes to Watson's house. He's in full mode, full deduction mode. So he's just like making comments on everything. You know, he doesn't mm-hmm. want to miss a single detail on anything, even though it's not even related. Yeah, so I kinda, a, I,
0: yeah the, the on I, switch the on switch is still very firmly in place. Exactly, exactly. Hmm. So
1: what, what did you make of this then? Well, the investigation, I, I like the, the level of the net with Holmes deducing, you know, almost like to an autistic level. I think I just kind of went over that. How it leads it to the case itself, we get an expert dump from Holmes on the details of the case, the murder of the quote-unquote murder of Colonel Barclay, Miss Morrison, whom Miss Barclay encountered. Oh, sorry, prior I just gonna, to just, sorry, I just gotta interrupt you for a to,
0: second. Um, just take back to something you said. Do you think then, as a question for you, do you think then that one of the reasons why we get this like, intense deduction at the beginning is because he's excited, blah 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 blah, or because? Conan Doyle gives us a massive info dump and feels, as a writer, he needs to balance it out
1: somewhat. Oh, I think he needs to have his Holmes, his quintessential Holmes detective moment there. But in that sense, so don't you find it's a little bit condescending because the how he says, like, oh, I see there's a vague, he keeps, he keeps referring to the deduct, Sherlock Holmes keeps explaining each one of his deductions, like, out loud, you know what I mean, Explain, explaining, explaining. And I think this is Holmes trying to lure Watson in so that Watson is understanding the deductions that he's making on what he's seeing there, and he wants Watson to follow through on the same train of thought. Hmm. Or use or kind of employ his method so that so that he can kind of lure him into the investigation as well. Because that's what his whole goal is here, right? That
2: is. And yeah.
1: And to me, it's interesting though, is too because I find in these particular stories that we that we're doing today, there is a stronger so, um, where display of Watson uh, making very good insight into the investigation and Holmes noticing this. Hmm. It happens in a couple of the stories that, that 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 we read today, actually.
0: So, you think that there's like a tautology going on here? Like he's he's working harder to be an instructor or a mentor.
1: A little bit, yeah. I think it is, and I think it's another dimension to their friendship. Cool. All right, so yeah
0: investigation sorry i interrupted you and then we had a nice tangent but back to what you were saying
1: yeah so i said like you know i mean mean, there's no real clues to consider in this one it uh it uh in many ways as i said it's it feels like a reboot of the sign of four and you know and which is transplanted into the motivations of henry wood almost inversed actually because he's kind of the good guy here and he's he's not the Jonathan Small type, right? He's, like, the good Jonathan Small. And at the very... And uh, at the whole... Also similar to, like, the American groomsman in The uh, Noble Bachelor, right? The one that uh, sweeps the Noble Bachelor's uh, lady away. Uh, There was kind of a similar... uh, Yeah. I yeah it's great by it's amusing prior to the info dumps
0: yeah, okay i I can see the similarity there that you're you're citing. there is certainly there is certainly a a similarity there, but in this story, it's more deliberate like he deliberately gets him out of the way instead of just a victim of convenience. yes, anyway. That yeah, okay, so, so what did um, you go for? I, I
1: think we said all that we really can on, on the investigation. I think my my score to this is uh 3.5.
0: Okay. Um well you might find this interesting, but I I think that this is a near perfect investigation. And I see al- although Holmes doesn't really deduct very much, or deduce, sorry, very much, I think that this is better than the sign of four. I like what I'm getting here more because it's it. Like, mm. I, I know I've complained in the past that, you know, we get so much history crammed into something that's massive or that should be a massive novel. And, and these are the stories he really wants to tell, blah, blah, blah. I know I've been kind of a a, a trumpet on that point, but here I feel like it's all proportioned correctly. And, the interesting context is on a singular personal level. This is the story of betrayal. This is the story of a guy who was just, you know, because he didn't have the right money, the right social class, the right status, he couldn't get the girl. And there, you know, there was a, a deliberate bastard that just took him out of the game and I think that is I, th- I think that is crooked. I-, I love the metaphor play on the idea of crookedness here in the story because one is yes. physically one is physically crooked, but the other guy, Barkley, was the crooked man. And that whole idea of using your your status to earn the trust of people under you, even if they're in competition with you for love or for something, and and being able to manipulate and ruin their lives. And this guy, I love the story uh, of of him traveling around and. And I don't need it all in detail. Like The way he told it to me is fine. Kind of like the way Karen Bay in From Russia With Love tells Bond about his backstory. I find it very similar here, and it's proportioned correctly for right. me. For me, personally, it's proportioned correctly to to give me what I want to feel bad for Henry Wood. And I have not felt for a lot of characters in this series. I've enjoyed them very much, but I haven't felt for them. I feel for Henry Wood, man. Like I do feel for him, and... I, I love the way that the story contrasts too. Like, you think about it, you've got the story beginning with the newly married Watson reading a book, dozing by the fire, his hot wife's upstairs in bed. Why he's not up there, I don't know. Maybe he's waiting for, for Holmes. You know, this is where the slash interpretation comes in. But yeah, yeah. But, but then you've got another married couple. That's violent, and this is where the murder scene is. And I I love the way that we've got the juxtaposition of the domestic scenes. Mm. Uh, I think that's really Mm. cool on Conan Doyle's part from a a writing point of view. Mm. And we've got a jolt out of one and a a move into another. I don't disagree with what you're saying that this info dump is still a problem. And it is a problem. We've seen a lot of info dumps, um, and they they have taken away from the investigation. But this is, for my part, probably... The best info dump that i've got so far in the series okay and I'm, I'm saying probably because i don't remember them all right now as i'm speaking but um i did look back through my scoring in my indexes and i can't think of a an info dump that i enjoyed more because it's coming from the character it's not coming from holmes or watson and what a police inspector said or you know a story's writing It, it it's better than what we got in the cardboard box uh where we get the murderer's confession like and that was a good one. But like the info dump here really serves to explain all of the things that Holmes um, shares with Watson on the crime scene, like the club that's there, the key taken out, the the footprints, which is cool. And I think that this is a really colonial story, the same way that The Sign of Four was, but it's it's proportioned a little better here. I, I like reading this more than mm. I like reading The Sign of Four. And I think it would still have appealed to... I think it still would have appealed to the um, to, to the readership at the time because you know the Raj and uh, and the, the, the empire was still mm. very much alive mm. there and mm. I, I just thought overall that it, it was it was pretty cool and yeah. uh, okay all right I I went four point five because wow. I I was was really into reading this story and I loved the this is a brutal a brutal case and you know what like even as I'm saying this. I'm disappointed in myself because brain fever is such a cliche at this point. I mean, I laughed about it last episode. We played a song a couple of shows back, like Brain Fever by David Wilcox. Like they all get fucking brain fever, right? And yeah. and, and it's really flimsy. I'll I admit it's really flimsy because if she just woke up or if we all just waited for the coroner's report, the medical report would, would exonerate her anyway, because he died from apoplexy. Like, I get that this is really flimsy, but I love The story of henry wood and the betrayal and i think it's really cool what he goes on and does with his life and how he manages to live um uh, as best he can in this crooked way and the idea of the idea of crookedness being amorphous and all around us and you know how we interpret how we interpret the handicapped and the disfigured like i think there's a lot of social commentary in this story that makes for interesting reflection so I, I am very aware of: bastards
1: and broken things. Yeah,
0: like I, I'm aware of the pitfalls and, and of the, um, the, the, the cliches here in the story and the gaps, because there are gaps. But I also have to think, and I think this is what we need to move towards, and we're doing a good job of it. got to think in terms of aesthetic too. And I was just really, really satisfied in reading this story. and I like the way it was written. Good. Um, I like what I got in it. So yeah, I went 4.5. I'm, su- okay. yeah, I'm surprised, I'm surprised. Uh, fair. But, that,
1: you know. that, no, I'm surprised, but at the same time, that's fair as well. Um, oh, there's one more I, I, thing I, I want to say. Well, say just, like, just these were my more initial thing. impressions and
0: if 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 I can just say one more thing. Sorry, dude. This was the last point I wanted to say on on narrative. Yes. Um, of course. The, the this is a great uh, this is a great example of a locked room mystery. And we saw a locked room mystery earlier. In the series. Oh, sorry, no, we didn't see it earlier in the series. We saw Fair Play Mysteries. But I just want to read this note to you because I thought this was cool. Uh, the Crooked Man presents all of the classic elements of a locked room or impossible crime mystery a locked room containing a murder victim with no apparent means of entry for the murderer. Edgar Allan Poe was the first modern writer to use his mystery form in Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1841. 1852, Wilkie Collins utilized the device with great success in A Terrible Strange Bed. The first novel-length use was in uh, Israel Zangwill's The Big Bow Mystery. The Oxford Companion to Crime and Mystery Writing credits the speckled band as the only encounter of Holmes with a death occurring in a locked room. But in fact, Holmes... Uh, several times dealt with such cases. In the sign of four, the body of Bartholomew Sholto was found in a locked room, but the mystery of entry of the murderer is quickly solved when upon forcing the door, a gaping hole in the ceiling is discovered. In the empty house, which we haven't got to yet, uh, Holmes must solve the murder of Ronald Adair found behind a locked door. The locked room genre retained its popularity throughout many changes in detective fiction. Gaston LaRue, G.K. uh, Chesterton, Melville Davison Post, and S.S. Van Dien all employed the plot device in one or more stories. In the 1930s, John Dixon Carr, later a biography of Conan Doyle, made the form his own, and in his 35 novel, The Hollow Man, U.S. title, The Three Coffins. The detective, Dr. Gideon, fell stop uh, the action of the book to give a chapter-length lecture on the varieties of locked room mysteries. I, I just thought this was cool. Like it, it made for hmm. a, dif- a different change in things. I enjoyed reading it. It was it was kind of refreshing. The setting was cool. Yeah. So four point five for me. Back to what you were saying. I, Apologies for I I, I
1: I think you know twist my arm in terms of like I acknowledge that this was definitely a superior version of the sign of four. And I I you know I respect that and I as I said I acknowledge it. I just think my initial impressions uh, are just really affected by. It was again one of those stories that we've seen something before. And I just wanted something different, and maybe yeah. I did get something different here. It was just it was just a reworking of what we had before, Fair and uh, maybe I'll, down the line I'll appreciate it a little bit more, perhaps if you know. But uh, right now I'm going to stay with my three point five. I'm going to go with my initial feelings, but okay, cool. um, I definitely appreciate the dimensions that you offered for, for me to look at here.
2: Yeah,
0: well, you know, I'm being generous. I am, and I haven't really been generous very often so far, but I feel myself being generous here because I am aware of the cliches, and I am aware of the gaps and the the little disappointing features in the narrative, but I liked so many other parts of it that, yeah, I I went for that. So, what about perpetrators?
1: The perpetrators we have here, uh, in the end... Barclay is victim and victimizer. Hello. What's he? What's he a victim of? Well, he's he. Well, this is kind of well of a, of apoplexy.
0: <laughs> oh, okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, of death. It, yeah, he's a victim of death. Yeah. Jealousy and overall scumminess leads a good soldier to a terrible fate in in the in the wilds of India and its borders. Revenge is bittersweet, you know, it's it's uh, despite getting the girl, so to speak, Barkley lives with his guilt for decades, so much so that the shock of seeing Wood strikes him catatonic and, and thanks to, the you know, gra- gravity, uh, and then of course the apoplexy that happens before he hits the table, all those things, you, you know, like they all come out, out of rush at him all at once, and... He was a different type of villain than we've seen before, in my in, in, in my in my opinion. If you think of you know of like the the hero killer of the study the study in Scarlet, you know how he uh, was waiting all this time, you know for 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 his aneurysm to occur so he could get his just revenge on all the people, you know, all those people. And then here we have kind of like the opposite of where someone who's built up all this guilt and hate and which people people saw that reflected them in his own life, which gave him a, a kind of a very subdued and unhappy marriage. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it, it, in a way, it wasn't unhappy in the sense of like you know there was violence or anything like that in that regard. But it was very cool. Like she would go out and go go to go to church meetings and stuff and occupy herself in a different way. You know, mm-hmm. than just hanging out with her husband and the circles that he that he traveled in.
0: Yeah, she was interesting in that respect.
1: Yeah, she, Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so the the idea, you know, that this guy has an apoplexy at the moment of, uh, realizing, you know, that wood is still alive and everything, it's kind of similar, it's kind of an inversion of, like, the, uh, the guy in the study in Scarlet, you know, like, having his aneurysm before he's hanged, right? So... Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it is, actually. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, so I kind of, I I found that kind of neat. Um, you know, like, it's a reversal, as I said, of, like, of Jonathan Small in a way. Um... I kind of, I also made kind of a, a, a snide kind of note here about how, you know, like Tonga is kind of dehumanized further in this iteration as a mongoose. <laughs> That's terrible, I know. But, yeah, it, but well, there's, there's scope for it. Yeah, re, 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 revenge is a dish best served lukewarm, I guess, in this sense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what did you score for? Three point five
1: on the perpetrators
0: yeah okay i'm uh, I'm at the same place with you. I was at three point five as well uh okay I don't really have a lot to add to that to be honest um <laughs> Barclay is a bastard, but we have seen his type before um but really what he did was was quite scummy uh his karma was kind of due i guess um and he knew it and he knew it yeah he knew it that's the look of death in his and and fear in his face uh what about environs would you go for here?
1: The opening paragraphs give a good impression of Watson's household as we see it through Sherlock's eyes. Um, even though you know Watson is the the <laughs> the the narrator, um, we get like the uh, the hat stand, you know, the, the marks in the linoleum, the fire. You get an impression of Watson's house, and it it, it kind of set the setting for a nice little moment there, atmospherically. Um, then you have like you know uh, you know uh hudson street where miss morrison and uh nancy encounter wood the quiet you know single light you can picture the film noir lighting almost you know Mm uh uh, just just when wood is talking to nancy uh especially in how he looks so different from what she saw before yeah um yeah the morning room um you have like the the morning room it's enclosed locked to the violation of intimacy with the past the tense atmosphere this this lens much like the barclay like the mark Mar- barclay marriage itself uh when wood appears in the window after the revelation of uh of what happened to him you know the window crashes down it breaks and then the other guy falls and has his heart attack and you know like you know it's very subtle and i think in the environs they help the story a lot and they they impressed upon me, you know, a much better story than what I was. I, th- I, I thought I was. I was g- getting here, uh, despite you know the, the the info dumps and stuff that I've seen before. Although you argue it's just done in a much better way. So well, what, what, I went with four for okay. the environs.
0: Yeah, I went for four with the environs as well. I really liked the the home. I feel like the interior work, the locked room, came came quite to life when uh, we were listening to Holmes talk about it. The Hudson Street environment, particularly Henry Wood's place, was neat. And although they're not detailed and, and they're only referred to, I like the the, the vision, the imagery that uh, comes to mind of the um, the... Sergeants, Sorry, the soldiers' quarters and the officers' quarters and, and the idea of this guy kind of going around entertaining them. It, it's all very visual. There's a lot of good yeah. visuals in this, even though we don't have them uh, laid out on a table for us as such. Like, Just the backstory yes. tells us a lot, you know, like the Darjeeling uh, hill tribes and the, um, the kind of being – Uh, you know up in nepal and whatnot doing whatever work he could do to get himself through like there's there's a lot of neat inference here that makes the environments feel bigger and better than they probably are as existent on paper so i went for the same as you
1: all right Uh, well there i think that that's uh um a good tie Uh, let's move on to the supporting players
0: Right. well supporting players uh for me I, I i really liked Henry Wood I thought he was very very interesting um mm-hmm. not just as a victim but kind of as the yeah sure he's he's the puzzle piece that explains everything and that's fine um but his relationship to Nancy I felt it was it was quite um uh, Hesitate to use the word visceral, but I really believed in it. Like the little touches that Doyle gives us about him moaning in his room two nights. You know, after meeting Nancy, tells us that he he's still the same man. He's still love struck, but he is dealing with the Phantom of the Opera, Beauty of the Beast type thing. He knows that he knows that he's not going to be loved because of the way he looks, and that he can't gain the same sort of uh, reputation that he may have had a chance of getting back. Uh, when he and Barclay were in regiment together. Like, he knows that those days are gone because this is a society that that judges you on your looks. Um, I felt that he was a very Dickensian in his decrepitness. I don't know if you yeah. agree with that. Um, you're no, more...
1: I, I, I agree, yeah. You, you... I like the idea of him. Um, the, it's almost I don't like the idea of it because, you know, I like Henry Wood. But it seems to me like, you know, this guy was also, it was described as being quite, uh, Watson points out that he would have been quite, pretty man when he was young as well but even then he, he wasn't of the right class so therefore right, yeah. he was no good and now he's not only not only is he not just the right class he doesn't even look good anymore you know yeah, like he's super, totally. like, like he's 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 crooked in his own way but not in the way that Barkley is yeah
0: yeah And the Baker Street irregulars they show up here too, you know, but I find they do,
1: yeah, we got Simpson there, yeah, I, I find
0: I, it I, interesting, man, like for such mythic figures in this canon, they really only appear a few times, and this, according to what Klinger writes, um, I looked into it here, this is the only appearance uh, the only appearance in the short story we're going to see of them, oh wow, fifty six short stories, this is the only time they show up, so for for all the people go on about them, we've only seen them what three times now, <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it's like Mike it's like mycroft he doesn't appear in the stories very much either. I heard yeah, yeah. so
0: well, I guess the the only other um the only other thing that I was going to say here is on David, the reference to David, and I know David's not a supporting player, but thematically he kind of is in so far as he uh the the mention to 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 David. Um, We're talking, of course, King David
1: from the book of Samuel from the Old Testament.
0: That's right. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but in case our listeners aren't, David, the king of Israel, catches a glimpse of Uriah's beautiful wife Bathsheba while her husband is away fighting the war. Um, He knocks her up and tries when Uriah comes home to shift the blame onto him by plying him with food and wine and encouraging him to sleep with her. Well, Uriah refuses to leave the king's side, and David then sends him back to battle with secret instructions to place him at the front of the line so that he'll die. He does this, he does die, and David uh, marries Bathsheba. You've got a real parallel going on here at Liter- in terms of the narrative, and I think that's another thing that... I mean, I'm talking about it in terms of a secondary theme, player, a figure, but in truth, it's really more of a narrative point with the investigation that this reference uh, by Nancy to Barclay um, is, is not really without some possibility, as David was a popular figure... Uh, in Victorian times. I didn't know that until I read it, uh, but a, a lot of Victorians were quite fascinated by the story of David. Um, unlikely, though, that she Ooh. would retrieve the comparison so quickly, like the way it just flew off her lips, you know, in the heat of an argument. Um, is a little strange, but I like the parallel to the storyline of betrayal and sending someone out to die while you take their wife, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh... Uh, it's definitely an, an epic context there and uh, again another thing of, uh uh i'll just give my view on the supporting players sure i went for um, a four by the way four okay cool i actually went for four as well that was okay. i think one of the strongest parts of the story in my opinion right um nancy devoy slash barclay you know she's somewhat fleshed out here even though barclay won her heart seemed to be with wood and this leads to a very subdued marriage you know of repressed emotions very repressed emotions, mm-hmm. and of course that hat trick of Ward of uh, Woods revelation, uh, being alive, uh, her row with Barclay, Barclay's death, uh, all culminates into a credible emotional trauma. So here, brain fever, as you know, as we look down upon it, is very justified. Uh, good point. Um, Henry Wood, you know, he seems to have accepted his lot, and while loathing Barclay, um, you know, he can see he. he We feel that he's justified in 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 his in in his hatred, even though it's for not because Barclay killed himself. And uh, as I mentioned before, revenge is a is a dish best served lukewarm. Um, I like and regarding another thing I liked about um, uh, it connects to the environs actually a little bit in regards to uh, wood is that his place you know like with uh, even though his place was really small and everything. And he's a crooked man, and he has to do his acts and stuff. And he's knows that the life that he is is gone. He still has that gentility of an Englishman, regardless of his class. That he has two chairs available Mm -hmm. for Watson and Holmes to sit in while he's talking to them. That's an astute observation.
0: I I didn't pick up on that, but that's uh, well done to get that.
1: Yeah, I like the fact that you know, like he that uh, it's just this guy is the real deal. You know, he is the real deal, and. Uh, but because of the society at the time, he's not allowed to to be who I, what he should be, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Miss Morrison also uh, she popped out on the page to me. Um, she seemed like a true friend of Missus Missus Barclay. She was likable, and uh, you know she seemed really real. She was like a, she was a sweetheart, you know. Um, so overall, I found that uh, the uh, crooked man has a lot of Greek, really interesting supporting characters that really fleshed out the narrative in a strong way, and to me that was the strongest part of this story and and I gave it a four
0: cool well that brings you to an 18.5 out of 25 and it brings me to a 19.5 so this is unparalleled I've liked both stories a little bit more than you so far yeah and uh, this might be a good time for us to take a break just a real quick uh, break to refresh our cups or our drinks as you select a musical selection
1: I'll go for door number one Alex
0: Door number one. Okay, um, door number one. Well done. You have selected from Mark Snow's soundtrack to The Uh, X-Filed. You've got a little bit here of the postmodern Prometheus. I thought this would fit nicely. You (laughs) want to say something about this character before
1: I play? No, good choice. Oh, the postmodern Prometheus. Well, I mean... If if you know your X Files, he was the uh, the Frankensteinian experiment of was it Dr. Palidori?
0: Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think so.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's John O'Hurley, the guy who was like Jay Peterman in Seinfeld or whatever. Um, he has he's basically created this monster, uh, and this monster, you know, he wants to. I guess. Well, in a way, it's kind of a bit sketchy nowadays because what he was attempting was is actually pretty much uh, <laughs> drugged impregnation. <laughs> you know okay, what I mean? Right.
0: You know what? You, you're ruining this. You're ruining this for me. You're making me feel like it wasn't a good choice. I, I was purely going on the physical deformation angle. Yeah. Okay. You know what? Fuck you. Postmodern Prometheus. Uh, we'll save that for another time. I'm going to play you the other <laughs> one. Door number two. I'm going to choose this time. Um this is <laughs> yeah really like you talked you talked the theme totally away from that one so I'm going with Soldier Boy, Soldier Boy by the Shirelles fine think about Nancy Soldier and Henry back in the day uh. On to our third story of the afternoon. We've got the resident patient. And I thought, Josh, uh, it might be fitting, given what we have coming in store here with this story, to uh, start this one off with a little sound file as well. So that's two of our stories now that I'm prefacing with a sound file. Uh, we're all about the amateur touch here at Light the Pipes. Uh, we're not experts. <laughs> we're lovers, not, uh, not experts. So uh, what have I got here? Yeah. Here we go, an opportunity to use one of these great sound files uh, of a person being strangled. Now, <laughs> uh, Maybe, Josh, in the next few moments with your plot summary, you'll be able to contextualize that sound and explain why indeed it's fitting for this, our third story of the afternoon.
1: <laughs> well, before we get into the uh, summary of uh, the resident patient um, from July August 1893, published in The Strand, we have some good read uh, to kind of uh, frame the whole adventure we're about to undertake here.
0: Can't hear you very well,
1: pal. One person called it. You can't hear me?
0: Nah, it's a little muffled. You get your hand over the mic or something. No. There you go. Perfect. Oh,
1: okay. Good. Uh, yes. So, one person said that the resident patient was solid. That's it. Solid, huh? Solid, solid with a happy face emoticon. Oh. One person said, "If you like spy adventures in the 1800s, this is a good read." Hey, <laughs> that's the name of the web. That's the name of the website. titular tautology on that guy's behalf um, good and solid story but after reading about 15 other short stories about Holmes it slowly gets repetitive okay. <clears throat> and a lot of people just doing basic plot summaries I can't say I understood the ending at all but it had a great start wow Okay. Maybe you should not be reading Sherlock Holmes, then. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of a, uh, a gauge of the whole section Sherlock Holmes reviews there for the uh, resident patient. Contemporary reviews, of course, as we know that uh, any kind of extant reviews from the time period are very hard to come across. So I'll just delve into the uh, resident patient outline.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I'm just eating uh so, a little rice cake here, buddy. That, that's that's why you're listening to me chew.
1: Ah, uh, I see. Well, enjoy your rice cake. Because um, let's just say that uh, Blessington Sutton won't be enjoying any rice cakes for a long time.
0: No, you might even say they'd get stuck in his craw. ha, 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 ha,
1: ha, ha. So, Sherlock Holmes can now read minds. On a dreary October day, H&W have exhausted their reading material, or at least Watson has. It's clear that he is in the doldrums up until the moment where Holmes brazenly declares he is the stupendous yappy, or Charles Xavier in this case. Another quirky teaser, Holmes explains to Watson how he read his mind. It's kind of cool, kind of convenient, all those available, all those variables working at just the right moment, A, A, C, D. ACD? Yeah. Uh, this somewhat creepy yet fascinating moment in the Holmes-Watson dynamic is followed by a wee constitutional. Once the um, once the weather clears up and the dynamic duo are soon back at 221B, just in time for a new client. Roll opening credits. Here is Percy Trevelyan, MD, perhaps the long-lost ancestor of Alec Trevelyan. That's a Bond reference for the kids back at home. I got it. Don't worry, pal. Okay, you got it. Okay, okay, good, good. Uh, Apparently, Watson is a fan. Trevelyan uh, runs a clinic funded and supported by Blessington, a resident patient with a poor ticker. According to uh, Arthur Conan Doyle slash Watson, Blessington tracked the destitute doctor Trevelyan and sketchily Convinced him to open up a medical practice, but that is not all. Trevelyan receives a letter from the son of a Russian nobleman, claims he has Saint Vitus's dance or something along those lines. He wants to, he wants to see the doctor right away, but the Russian nobleman has read *The Regate Squire* and, using a page <laughs> from the *Book of Holmes*, goes hall, caesary, and apoplectic as on Trevelyan, whilst his son searches the premises. The whole vaudeville act leads to a terrified Blessington, who claims someone has been in his room. Natch Trevelyan hightails it to the world's only consulting detective. H and W arrive at the practice and to find Blessington gone all Waco in his in this joint. Trevelyan. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, well. I hadn't thought that about That's a 90s Waco reference for there while. for the.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. It just came up there for some reason. Trevelyan um, unjitters this the sickly desperate man's nerves, and Holmes is led into Blessington's rooms, uh, and is delivered a BS story about his strongbox. Holmes shuts down, having no time for his lies. Nothing worse than someone who won't help themselves. Maybe he, maybe they should have they should have called Doctor Phil. Probably not a great idea, as Holmes would probably reveal him as a char- charlatan. Is Doctor Phil still on TV over there? I think so.
0: Yeah, yeah, he is. God, man, he's he's been going a long he's got a long history now, doesn't
1: he? Yeah, well, when Oprah discovers you, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. So H&W tear off leaving Blessington to his guilty devices and how Ab- 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 Abram Uber's from the Brook Street practice, uh, where Trevelyan uh, leads them back uh, to to Blessington's crib of lies, only to find Scotland Yard's finest are on the case. So, Lanner, um, another or Lestrade, just starts with an L, it may may as well be the same person, Mm -hmm. basically says, Blessington hanged himself. Holmes pieces together a a scratched-up door lock cigars and the screwdriver and the impression of Footprint to deduce the robbery, to deduce that, that this robbery and this uh, break-in and this murder, as he's calling the suicide of Blessington's, as the son and the Trevelyan uh, page boy hang Blessington, making it look like he chose the rope instead. Blessington was part of the Worthington Bank Gang, you see. He was the worst of them, but also the most cowardly. Adding credence to the idiom, "snitches get stitches," he gave up his three colleagues. One got hanged; the others hard time. Well, the jury of peers have spoken. Blessington buys it another buys it uh, another way, uh, being hanged by his own peers, and uh, he becomes another one of our asshole victims.
0: <laughs> There's a lot and of them
1: now. They're starting to pile up. They are. They're all piling up. He got many notches in his belt. That's the whole <laughs> thing. And in the space of a paragraph, we learn that the judicious remnants of the gang went down on, went down on a ship, lost at sea, pro- probably um, touching on the ocean floor next to the glorious Scott. Yeah,
0: or that ship in the uh, Five Orange Pips, whatever one that is.
1: Oh, yeah, that's right. That's uh, the, uh, the uh, KKK guys.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the exact same
1: ending. It really is. It really, really, really is. Anyway. But that's really all that there was to the, uh, in terms of the outline anyways, of the resident patient. Um, it was kind of a uh, tense story. And despite, you know, a little opening act with Holmes's uh, little, uh I can read your mind, Watson, watch this. Uh, mm. <laughs> beyond that, uh, there wasn't really a lot of humor to glean f- from it, in my opinion, and anyways. No, and the beginning is a bit muddled, but there's, there's
2: a
0: history to that, which... I don't know if you remember when we read the cardboard box, and I don't even know if in your cardboard box, which, if I'm correct, is in the last bow, because um, remember it was kind of it was taken out of publication and put back in. But there's something there that I, I want to share with you because I think we might have discussed it at the time, but it might not be in the American edition. When the cardboard box was suppressed, hmm. uh, editors at the time took bits from its introduction and placed them at the start of this story to beef it up and this whole mind oh, reading really? the whole mind reading thing i it's in my copy of the cardboard box it's there really yeah 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 like <sighs> i read it when i read the story and discussed it with you the first time the whole i the whole thing about the painting on the wall and reading um uh da, 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 reading watson's mind and all that because i made a mention of it my plot summary so it was in my edition it and originally it was written for the cardboard box but when it was pulled from publication, editors took bits of that story to, to beef this one up a bit. So the beginning that you're you're reading oh. about was actually written before this story.
1: So what do you have at the beginning of the Resident Patients?
0: I have the exact same thing. Because that's the way it was published. Oh. But what I'm saying is it's actually duplicated. Oh I see.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It is kind of interesting. So, if, oh, so in well, the American is
1: duplicated, it's duplicated in both the uh, resident patient, and then of course in the cardboard box when it appeared in the uh, in the in the collection of tales. I believe uh, his last his last yeah.
0: bow. That's right.
1: Yeah, his last bow. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, anyway. All right. Well. Um, Yeah, so I kind of – so, yeah, that strangling sound that you made uh, pretty much fits the end of uh, Blessington slash Sutton, Mm -hmm. the the ruthless member of the Worthington bank gang who meets his fate by his own colleagues whom he betrayed.
0: Yeah, it's just kind of like a a grisly organized crime hit, isn't it?
1: It is, yeah. It's kind of – the story was kind of an organized crime thriller that really – Holmes didn't really do too much. He kind of just kind of observed what was happening in, in a way. They're almost like observers, you know?
0: There are observers. There is some cool stuff in here, though. Like, I did really like... Like, I felt he had a bit of agency. Like, the idea of him being able to determine that it wasn't a suicide because of the cigar, the cigar ashes. And kind of looking at how they were placed around the room. Like, I love that we get to see him working here at his yes. cigaret, cigarette or cigar ash research. Because in study in scarlet he mentions that he had written a publication or he had made a a folio on the subject and elsewhere in the canon we got to see him mention or make reference to tobacco but here in this story this is me my own my own feeling like i feel like he uses it properly in the course of an investigation because he's able to discern from how the ashes are and the fact that there's different types of ash he knows through his study that there's more than one person in here and that this was this was a crime like he's able to see a method to this as a hit instead of, ah. and an interrogation before they hit, instead of just, like, oh, there were guys smoking cigars. And I feel like that's a bit of canon. Like, we're getting a bit of the... Uh, I'm getting some of the, um, the... It's pairing up, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like, I'm happy to see... Not to mention... Matches. The, the...
1: Yeah, okay. Well, yeah, because it's, it's a continuity, right? It's a continuity, continuity. From, the, uh, from the previous it. cases with the tobacco that he's investigated. Yeah. Um, but also, too, to consider is also those footprints on the on the carpet, which he, was, he sees even earlier on so he knows already there's more than one party involved here Mm -hmm. that's why he basically tells him his case is his whole thing about the lockbox is bullshit yeah are you gonna gonna tell me i'm here to help you and he's like no there's nothing else beyond that and he goes well suit yourself right yeah exactly um yeah so so i guess this is a good lead-in for the principles well i think that was us discussing
0: the principles um yeah
1: in a way it was yeah Our, our our pipes are relit again already
0: Yeah, pipe's already relit. I mean, I I went for three and a half here at the Principals.
1: I did too. Oh, cool. Since, you know, like, yeah, since Arthur Conan Doyle, you know, he wishes to focus on kind of the downfall of Blessington slash Sutton, uh, there is not a lot of detective work uh, beyond, you know, what you mentioned there, right? Uh, He does have that uh, stop lying to me, exasperation moment with Blessington. uh, His perception is justified somewhat with the mind reading sequence at the beginning. So even though I realize now that's probably tacked on, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yeah, so, so it was actually tacked on from another story, which is kind of interesting. Um, I kind of found that the mind reading is actually a good setup for the story because it shows that, you know, he's in already detective mode already and uh, he was able to make those deductions in terms of the uh, the logic of the story.
0: Hmm. I like Holmes in the crime scene, the bedroom. I think that's a really captivating scene. Um, I don't like all of these sort of crime scene investigation stuff because in the barrel Coronet, for example, I wasn't really that engaged where he was running all over the house and the windowsills and stuff. But I really like this one. I think it's because it's a closed room and he's not complicating it by looking out in the garden and stuff like that. Like I find it's really cool that we can focus on individual details like cigar ash and like the chandelier hook and stuff like that. Like I, yeah. I, I like that. It's like a game of Clue, kind of, you know?
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. It has that fun element to it. So, you know, he's pretty much, you know, status quo in this story, uh, as is Watson. Mm -hmm. Um, I appreciated, you know, his uh, tense powers of observation and starting to rub off on Watson as well, illustrating when Watson is able to see exactly how Holmes knew the Brahm belonged to that of a rookie practitioner. So that's another example, as I mentioned, of 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 Watson's uh, being able to see the way the world at Holmes sees it now more and more. And I, I like that continuing development on the dynamic of the two characters. Uh, but even so, 3.5 for me.
0: Yep, same with me. Um, I'm just looking through my notes here to see if there's anything I want to share about uh, um, the principles, but uh, no, I don't think so. I like, like you said already, that Trevelyan is sort of in Watson's favor. Uh, he talks about... Um, Well, they get to talk about nervous disease, right? And I thought that was
1: funny, given that brain fever is like all over the stories. Um, Yeah, I know nervous disease, brain fever. Yeah, and how Watson was kind of. It's interesting too, because you've noticed how I've about brain fever, and how he uses it so many times. I wonder if this was Arthur Conan Doyle just trying to say these women aren't suffering from brain fever; they're suffering from emotional trauma. Hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and maybe maybe he was trying to make. Trying to spell that out to his audience in that way. And then having Watson being interested in neurological disorders and stuff and studying that and Holmes showing you know, how the human brain can work in different ways and everything. I think Arthur Conan Doyle is trying to suggest something here.
2: Yeah,
0: you might be right. Yeah, you could be right. Like there's a broader context uh, commentary going on. Yeah, absolutely. Trevelyan so is So you, um... you think of the
1: investigation?
0: Well, I just – okay, sorry. Yeah, um, the investigation um... – I was just going to say that another thing about Trevelyan and Watson like is from Principal's point of view like he loves the fact that he's a University of London man too because Watson was a yeah. University of London guy and the two of them shared the same um the same sort of alma mater if you will. Anyway, uh investigation, what did I think of the investigation? Uh I liked parts of this investigation for the fact that they were as I've already said quite tight and close and kind of uh, the, the environment of the investigation suited, you know, but um I also found it a one-trick pony. Like, I I, I followed this one pretty easily. I didn't think... I knew that he was looking for cover because why else would he pay a a needy sort of young opportunistic doctor, you know, like full rent. Right. Like, I knew that he was hiding from something, so it was just waiting to see what it was. And I knew, absolutely knew, that this guy's fit was fake uh, because two stories ago, Holmes faked a fit and because we're reading them quicker than the public of the contemporary time, I, I figured that there was something going on here, a bit of play happening and that um, when he was gone from the room, he had been searching the home. Like I, I kind of followed this one a little easier and that took me out of it a bit. I didn't feel like patting myself <laughs> on the back. I kind of felt like, well, you know, just, just I'll just get to the end and find out what it was that this guy Blessington's really all
1: about or Beddington. So yeah. Yeah. It's like you're reading, about. it's like you're watching like a, uh castle or 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 something like where murder she wrote you know like you know the ants you know you know you know the you know that the you know that the guest star is the villain obviously right so yeah i mean it didn't it
0: didn't take me totally out of it i found a lot of the details of the investigation interesting particularly this stuff on catalepsy uh i wanted to share a little bit about that if i could uh because it it provides some really interesting context i think on victorian history and kind of literary history itself are you happy for me to just read a note or two here
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious to see what what that has to say.
0: Okay. A person suffering from catalepsy would experience a sudden rigidity of muscles such that his or her limbs would remain fixed in whatever position they were placed. Catalepsy tends to be a symptom of various clinical disorders such as epilepsy and schizophrenia. Many authors writing in the 19th century used the striking effects of catalepsy in their fiction, perhaps as suggested in 2000 Journal of the History of the Neurosciences article as a stand-in for epilepsy. To dramatic effect. In Tennyson's 1847 poem, The Princess, the narrator, diagnosed with catalepsy, confesses to having, quote, weird seizures in which I seem to move among a world of ghosts and feel myself the shadow of a dream. The cataleptic narrator, in Edgar Allan Poe's The Premature Burial, from 1850, enters frequently into a state uh, without pain, without ability to stir, or, strictly speaking, to think, but with a dull, lethargic consciousness of life. Terrified that he'll be buried alive during one of his attacks, Poe's narrator alerts his friends not to bury him until he has begun to decompose, arranges for the family tomb to contain ample food, water, and a door that can open from the inside, and designs for himself a warmly and softly padded coffin with a spring-loaded lid. For all that, the narrator, while away from home on a trip, is buried alive anyway, as is Poe's similarly cataleptic Madeline in the fall of the house. Of Usher, which, by the way, you should totally read if you haven't and seen the Vincent Price film. It's great. Uh, And the friendliness, bitter title character of George Eliot's Silas Marner in 1861, standing at his doorway, loses an unspecified amount of time when he's struck by the invisible wand of catalepsy and stood like a graven image with wide but sightless eyes, holding open his door, powerless to resist either the good or the evil that might enter there. And the reason I, I wanted to share those notes is, is just because we're reading it quite distant from that. But it was obviously a very interesting uh, and captivating illness or, I guess, mysterious sort of condition for not just these writers in what they did with it, but the public would have been really fascinated with the idea of catalepsy. And so for us, it's a footnote, but for a reader picking up the story in 1893, it would have really probably, if they were educated in these ways, it, it would have been... Uh, of the time
1: and very chic if you see what i mean yeah yeah it would be it would have been it would have been, a, would have been quite an enticement
0: yeah yeah that's a nicer way of saying it so the whole idea of seizures and fake yeah. seizures and, and kind of like uh brain fever we've had a lot of mental nervous disorders but this was obviously what people yeah. like to read about it, it was you know they motivated a lot of plots and characters and people were fascinated with them so they're they're well ugly. also
1: too i mean it's obvious, I know, but if you're if you're reading about uh, crime fiction, obviously mental disorders are going to come into play at some point.
0: Yep, totally. Uh, yeah. So, what did I think of the investigation? I'm not really giving you that information yet, but I, I thought it was okay, um, better than average, but not quite not quite really that good. So, I liked it, um, but I was more interested with little things about it than the investigation itself. And as a stylistic hmm. whole. I went for three, so not not a very strong mark for me, okay. because I didn't think uh, uh, I was a little more.
1: I was okay. a little more generous. Okay, but uh, you were going to say that.
0: No, I was just going to say, apart from that, that ash, and the the cigar reading, um, I was there with him. I I knew what was going on for the most part, and the the police work uncovered the rest. Right, like going to find out who these guys were. Like that explained it to me. So, I didn't think Holmes was. Yeah, it was really doing much in this investigation, although I gave him and Watson a higher mark. I liked, um, it was okay, I was kind of interested, but as you'll see when I get to the uh, environs and when I get to the secondary characters, I liked, I liked things about the story more than the story itself.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I, I thought it was a good yarn. Um, we get another kind of Holmes and Watson slice of life vignette, followed by a client with an intriguing case. Uh, Blessington's early shadiness is set up in the in the flashback of his offer to Trevelyan. Small little details like the uh, the page for example, the Russian nobleman and his son, the disappearance of the old man and the tension it creates and builds up and builds up to Blessington's paranoia Holmes' perception of the situation dismissal of Blessington's BS that case kind of solves itself basically is what I'm saying here. Mm-hmm. With Blessington um, and you know tried by his former gang and then hanged it's a rather anticlimactic in that way, and, but, but I, I, that depends, I guess, on what you focus your sights on as a reader, right? Are you reading this as a Sherlock Holmes story? Or are you seeing this as the downfall of Blessington S- S- Sutton as observed through Trevelyan and through Holmes and Watson? That's and a good that's point, kind of a story actually. That I think I'm going to pick up on that. Tell. How do you
0: read it? I mean, we're reading it and studying it as a
1: Sherlock Holmes story, but are you able to take yourself out of it and enjoy it for those other elements? That's what I did. I kind of I kind of realized that that's what the story was about. Is that it's more about Blessington because when you get to the when you, when you when you get to the point that we still don't know like who the Russian nobleman is yet or anything along those lines and what's their connection to Blessington in some capacity like why are they out for him that mystery was still left until the very end and to me that meant that that this that the reveal was tied to Blessington and that to me Arthur Conan Doyle was here focusing on and was enjoying I think writing the story about Blessington. Mm-hmm. And that the Holmes and Watson and uh, Trevelyan are kind of like the observers to his fate, and uh, and his story overall. Uh, so uh, I gave I gave the investigation uh, a four initially, but okay. I'm kind of I'm going to stay at a three point five. Okay, right. So it was the perpetrators. Uh, Blessington, you know, as another victim victimizer, he's nervous, he's weak-hearted individual, he's desperate to hold on to life and. The expense of others
0: yeah we have uh, we have pity for this is, guy
1: don't we we do have pity because d- he he didn't do, do anything wrong like he did something
0: wrong against the criminals but he, he he just turned queen's evidence like he just he just gave them in and yeah that was betrayal but he was doing what the law demanded of him what the law was giving him an opportunity and he didn't technically
1: betray anybody illegally you know what i mean no, exactly. And, you know, the revealed identity as Sutton, you, you know, it, uh, it kind of, it, while it dashes any philanthropic light that he was throwing on to uh, uh, Trevelyan, he is a pitiable character in that way. Mm-hmm. It moves us over to, like, the Russian nobleman and his son, you know, they appear to be, you know, they are masters of deceit and sleight of hand, they are determined, and they are morally gray, uh, in terms of their justification for what they they do, I found this story had an interesting set of of villains and uh, or just or you know, uh, and antagonists, if you want to use a more neutral term. So I went with a four for the uh, for, for for the perpetrators.
0: I went with a 4 for the perpetrators as well and and this I think signifies what I was saying a moment ago about me liking parts of this story more than the the, the whole story itself. I can't necessarily and I should be able to I guess, but I can't really qualify that uh, that statement in any greater detail like I didn't I wasn't really engaged as much coming out of the crooked man. I felt like this was significantly less of a story of, of uh, at least a compelling story, but I do agree with what you said. Yes. These perp- these perpetrators do create a sense of tension in the story. Um and i I like that. I like the paranoia that beddington uses to kind of go through it, but I don't want to just be reading about him like i I kind of want to see more of our investigation here going on and yeah exactly that's, that's what that's why when this when when Holmes rocks up to the crime scene with uh, inspector lanner like that that's why I'm immediately thrown back into it because it's kind of been a slow go for me. I've been getting a lot of this character. And Trevelyan talking about this character, but it's not until that crime scene really livens things up again for me. So um, I, I liked the perpetrators and I do agree with what you're saying that in a roundabout way, uh, Blessington is himself a perpetrator, um, kind of crafting his own demise in a way. But yeah, I, I went for a fork because if you were to if you were to line up, and I think this is more and more the way I'm starting to think about what we're doing here, and it's probably natural, but if you were to line up all of the villains, all of the perpetrators, in a rogues gallery, or like a viper parade as they call them over here, where you go to identify people at a police station, these guys would stand out above average, and I think well above average, enough to warrant a four.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um they, they 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 kind of go up like with with like the Cunningham's, right? Like in, in that respect.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But I also like the fact that like unlike the Cunningham's, there seems to be a, a lot more going on with the with, with the rest of the gang and stuff and and they have their own brand of, of justice, you know, in in their own way and stuff for their comrade that got hanged uh for the plea bargain that what's his name took, right? So Good point, yeah. So what about environment? environs well for the environs I found uh, Trevelyan's practice it had a certain atmosphere uh, in the sense of like again it's just the details that you picture that bring the environs together you got the page boy and who's seemingly so innocuous in his disposition and then you have um, then you have like the carpeting with his tell footprints uh, that put the facts of the case together the gaslight staircase where in a um where in darkness you know we experience blessington's nervous homicidal desperation as he's pointing the gun at holmes and watson and uh Trevelyan at the bottom of the stairs uh and then it's only when he turn the light on that holmes is able to ascend and then you see the footstep. He sees the footprints already on the carpet, right? Mm-hmm. I like so he was that So he's already stuff putting too. the case yeah. case together. So I found the environs in terms of like Trevelyan's place were pretty cool, actually, in terms of telling the story. So I actually give it a three point five. Uh, beyond that, though, like the environs of the doctor's office, uh, there wasn't really any other environs in my mind to, to report.
0: Right. Okay. Well, um, I I went for three point five as well as you did, but I saw that there was. A lot more to the. Oh no! Wait a minute. That's not true. I'm just looking at my notes. I got, I went for a four with that. I went for a four with the environment. Okay. Yeah, and I I'm see sure. why. I now. was going
1: to think now is that one thing that I was going to add to is also the uh, the bedroom of Sutton's. Yeah, um, that that crime scene said, is what put it up there for me. Yeah, de- definitely the atmosphere of the of the of the of the crime scene being very tight. The uh, you know like all the clues there, the scratch door, the screwdriver, the footprints on the ground. All those things helped make the investigation, you know, visual in her eyes and and was able to put you right at the scene, as you said. So Mm -hmm. I guess that would kind um, of segue right into your own uh, interpretation of the environs.
0: Yeah, well, I'll I'll just I'll just read this. Uh, It was a dreadful sight which met us as we entered the bedroom door. I've spoken of the impression of flabbiness with. Or which this man blessed and conveyed as he dangled from the hook, it was exaggerated and intensified until he was scarce human in his appearance. The neck was drawn out like a plucked chicken's, making the rest of him seem the more obese and unnatural by the contrast. He was clad only in his long night dress, and his swollen ankles and ungainly feet protruded starkly from beneath it. Beside him, a smart-looking police inspector who was taking notes in a pocket book. Ah, Mister Holmes," said he, as my friend entered. "I'm delighted to see you. Good morning, Lanner," answered Holmes. "'You won't think me an intruder, I'm sure. "'Have you heard of the events which led up to this affair?' "'Yes, I heard something of them. "'Have you formed any opinion? "'As far as I can see, the man had been driven out of his senses by fright. "'The bed's been well slept in, you see. There, "'Here's a the depression, deep enough. "'It's about five in the morning, you know, that suicides are most common. "'That would be about his time for hanging himself. "'Seems to have been a very deliberate affair. "'I should say that he's been dead about three hours, "'judging by the rigidity of the muscles,' said I. "'Noticed anything peculiar about the room?' asked Holmes. "'Found a screwdriver, some screws on the wash-hand stand. "'Seems to have smoked heavily during the night, too. "'Here are four cigar ends that I picked out of the fireplace. "'Huh. Have you got a cigar holder?' "'No, I have seen none. "'His cigar case, then? Yes, it was in his coat pocket.' "'Holmes opened it, smelled the cigar, which it contained. "'Oh, this is a Havana, and these others are cigars of a peculiar sort "'which are imported by the Dutch from their East Indian colonies. "'They're usually wrapped in straw, you know, "'and are thinner for their length than other brands.' "'He picked up the four ends and examined them with his pocket lens.' He goes on to talk about how they've been smoked to different lengths and times. He went over to the door, turned in the lock, examined it in a methodical fashion. Then he took out his key, or took out the key which was on the inside, inspected that also. The bed, the carpet, the chair, the mantelpiece, the dead body, the rope were in each turn examined until, at last, he professed himself satisfied. And with my aid and that of the inspector, cut down the wretched object and laid it reverently under a sheet. There is a, a lot of detail in there about, you know, this room as being a real spectral place yes and just just like you know and again these are little touches or nuances but the idea of there being ash everywhere you know uh, that screws in the fireplace like the stuff hidden beneath dirt and ash and the grimy and the idea of the sheet hanging over the, the the body or the body hanging from the ceiling and then laying the sheet over there's a ghostly feel to all of this and
1: haunting yeah yeah it, it's it's good environment stuff i I went for um that's a good assessment of, of overall and uh, thanks for putting more detail into the into the environs in regard to the um, uh, bedchamber of uh, Sutton. There,
0: no problem. So, what about the secondary players? What do you what do you make of this?
1: I gave, to be honest, because we went, went to the perpetrators, which I think were the strongest part of the storyline, in my opinion. Yep, they were pretty sparse. So, I only yeah. gave supporting players a three. So did I. Lanners really nothing much going on here, is he? Typical Scotland DI. Not uh-huh. much there. You know, Tra- make the same conclusions as every other one of them does. And Trevelyan ones.
0: is kind of the same sort of character we got in the Stockbroker's Clerk, only he's a doctor. You know, he doesn't have a lot of money, but he has the brains to be good. And he's kind yeah. of taken advantage of. Um, maybe not in quite the same gullible way, but he's still being used. And so the, Which it's also kind of ends with cutter. a
1: hanging as well, or an almost hanging.
0: Yeah, good shout. That's right. It does. So there's a bit of mimicry going on here.
1: Yeah, inversion.
0: Inversion. So do you have uh, uh, if, if at the end of all our scoring then for this story I asked you what's the thing that stands out the most about the resident patient for you or if months from now you meet someone on the street and they say oh the resident patient
1: what stands out for you strange man I think on the road. The, I think the perpetrator's, Blessington's situation uh, just like just like the, the, the tenses of his character and, and I, I like the idea that Holmes wasn't able to save this guy from himself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it it's like, you know, he's lying to Holmes, and Holmes is like, "Well, I can't help you if you can't tell me the truth," and just walks away, you know. And then yeah. next day, oh, he's dead. Well, I guess that's what happens, right? Yes, it was yeah. just very matter-of-factly, and uh, Holmes, I think, dealt with that in a professional, in a professional fashion. And uh, he's was cold, uh, wasn't adds he? A bit, adds a bit of a callousness to his character, but it's yeah, a realistic it callousness. Uh, I guess so.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, good. Well, that brings us both to seventeen point five on that one. So we we saw eye to eye, even though we got there in different ways, kind of.
1: Yeah, my last thing on Trevelyan I wanted to mention is that he's very amiable. Um, he's a bit green, of course, right? But again, he's like uh, P- Pycroft there in, in many ways in the, uh, in the in the stockbroker's clerk.
2: Mm,
1: he is. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, not not as charmingly Cockney. No, Well, at least not that we know of At least not that we know of, yeah They never got into his cockiness, I I suppose So that does it for the resident patient It does, but uh, I I, I would like to say, though That there's another
0: element of the environment That um, readers at the time would have been more aware of Than perhaps we are And it all has to do with the area in and around which uh, Trevelyan's office or his home, his practice Is purchased uh, by Sutton or uh, Blessenden, because that though, like if you were to be a successful doctor in London, or even starting a doctor, that's where you got to be. You got to be Rick in Street. that area. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and okay. the area in and around like Cavendish Square is kind of where most of the uh, medical practitioners and you know, London's most exclusive ones are set. And so, uh, in you you read uh, Jekyll and Hyde, right?
1: A long time ago.
0: Yeah, anyway, uh, in in Stevenson's uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, there's a character in there called Dr. Lanyon, who's kind of like a friend, I think, if I remember. Yeah, he's a friend of Dr. Jekyll's. Anyway, he lived uh, and received patients on Cavendish Square. And it was also there, and this is a cool point that I found out in the... um, in my notes here from Klinger, Florence Nightingale served as superintendent of the Institute of Sick Governesses after her move to Harley Street in 1853, which is just around the corner from where Trevelyan's um, practice was supposed to be. And the Royal, <laughs> Soci- the Royal Society of Medicine had been headquartered at One Wimpole Street since 1912. Conan, Conan Doyle himself had offices at Two Upper Wimpole Street from March to May in 1891, while he attempted to establish a practice as an eye specialist there. So he knows the area he's talking about, and If you were anything or anyone in the know about medicine in London, you'd know that he's setting them in an interesting, probably exciting type of
1: place. You know, for a young. Oh, that's I I appreciate that. That context draws a lot of light. It also explains too why why Trevelyan, you know, even though being green, he would accept the shady offer of Blessington because Cavendish Square, Brook Street, that's just too much to. Not want to take that's advantage right. of, yeah. especially given his situation.
0: That's right, and so it is again a lot like the stockbroker's clerk in that sort of too good to be real sort of thing.
1: Uh, that's right. But at the end of the day,
0: Trevelyan comes out of this looking pretty good. He's got his office established and presumably making enough money now. He doesn't have to give this other guy any of it.
1: That's right. Exactly. So he, so it he walks, it kind of worked out
0: for him in that in that respect. He walks away. Uh, he walks away pretty good. Well, look in uh, dedication to. Uh, blessington it would be or i would be remiss if if i didn't play this the classic paranoid by black sabbath Okay, and in the spirit of brevity, I think maybe we'll um, we'll save the rest of that for another time. Everybody knows "Paranoid." Great tune, "Paranoid." Great tune.
1: We all know that song, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm gonna say we do. Interesting. That I just thought of something too. So Black Sabbath doing "Paranoid" for the for the story of Blessington. Black Sabbath, of course, did "Iron Man." They did. And of course, "Iron Man" was played by Robert Downey Jr. And another character that Robert Downey Jr. played was... Sherlock Holmes. There we go.
0: Well, let's just hold on to this Black Sabbath connection because we might hear another little something-something about those guys uh, when we're finished with this. And maybe not. Well, it all depends on what door you choose. But we're not here just to play music, are we?
1: No, we are not. We are here to discuss things seriously. Absolutely. Intellectually and Mm -hmm. with complete seriousness. Yes, I'm glad you point that out because this next
0: story is all serious. It's The Greek Interpreter, uh, published in September of 93 in The Strand and the 16th of September, 1893. That is, that's in the Harper's Weekly. And the 16th, that's my daughter's birthday. So there you go. Coming on two years old now, the little beast. Crazy. Anyway, uh, you got anything to say about this before I share some good reads? What do you think people thought of
1: this one? I think a lot of people liked it. That's okay. my that's my feeling. I really liked it. So right. I think I, I'm good at getting the pulse of the nation. So I would mm. say a lot of people like it.
0: Well, let's see if you're right at getting the pulse of the Goodreads nation. Uh, Aldo gave it 4 out of 5 with this Brilliant Brothers as his review. Gemma, 3 out of 5. Rather odd, but not bad. Interesting meeting Mycroft. Alexandra. Five out of five. You may be wondering, wow, full marks, Alexandra. Why do you feel that way? Well, Four words. Mycroft, I love him.
1: Okay, so a lot of the reviews are taken from the thin, slim Mycroft of the BBC series, I am guessing. Potentially,
0: yes. Uh, (laughs) We've got Jennifer, two out of five, with a helpful comment, Okay, but really boring. Um, and we've got Carlisle with four out of five. Great story, but doesn't really contain any of the great obscure deductions that people read Sherlock Holmes stories for. Mm. Uh, I'll, we'll debate that later on. We'll debate that later on, yes. Um, right, so the Greek interpreter. Let's see if I can uh, hammer you out a plot summary for this one. What do you get? BFG, when you mix feta cheese, olives, cucumber, red onion, and tomato. A really good salad. Greek salad. But what do you get when you mix fat relatives, mysterious carriage rides, band-aid men, blackmail, death by charcoal?
1: Well, it depends. If you're a regular guy or if you're Hannibal Lecter.
0: No, the answer is the Greek interpreter.
1: (laughs) One summer evening after
0: dinner, Holmes and Watson. You did. Uh, we're arguing the finer points of nature versus nurture, that old chestnut of intellectual debate, when Sherlock tossed a curveball at his sidekick, the nature of which had never been seen, heard, or discussed before within the confines of 221B. It turns out that Holmes isn't an Elon Musk proto-human blueprint at all, nor a and pre-robotic construct that many might suspect. No, no. He <laughs> confirms on this night of being fashioned of flesh and blood like the rest of us. Proof? He has a brother. Mycroft. How incredible. And what's more he's in possession of even greater deductive powers than Sherlock. Well, Holmes insists that he isn't fishing for compliments or looking for an ego stroke in saying that his brother has more brains. Quote, I'm speaking the exact the literal truth, he professes. Like Watson, we can only assume that ACD's readership would have been equally as excited to learn more about this other family logician at the time of publication, and the narrative wastes no time in delivering the goods. Holmes admits that Mycroft's weakness is a serious one. Sloth. Yes, his brother is more keen on slow-digesting fricassees and window-gazing from the comforts of the exclusive parlors and silent sills of the Diogenes Club than to realize any ambitions. With Watson's interest and ours peaked to a refreshingly quick maximum, only three pages in, Holmes acknowledges the time is suitable and leads all and sundry participants out of the flat and into the entitled Palmall area of Westminster where many of the great city's finest clubs could be found. Ruthlessly bespoke if not entirely bizarre by today's shouted-out-loud approach to socializing. The the Diogenes, (coughs) Diogenes Club is located just across the street from Mycroft's own rooms and just around the corner from Whitehall, the other home's place of work, where he audits government's books by day. Named after one of the founding philosophers of the cynic tradition, the Diogenes Club stands silent and judgmental over the Westminster neighborhood. When we meet Mycroft, he's perched in a window alcove like some tree-bound orangutan psychologist, deducing from above the manner and narrative of the gentleman below. <laughs> he and Sherlock trade humorous observations about this poor widower's plight before settling down to the business at hand. That business involves a Greek interpreter, Mr. Melos, who lodged lodges a floor above Mycroft and who has a singular problem that Mycroft thinks his brother could help on. Why not handle it himself? Well, it would involve moving, for one thing, and Sherlock reveals that he occasionally gets drip-fed cases by Mycroft, unique problems for which more active contribution is required than sitting on your arse in a club. Anyway, Melos meets the other three at the Diogenes and introduces himself as London's chief Greek interpreter. He launches into his story. No stranger to being called upon for his services at unsocial hours when distinguished guests or A-listers arrive in the city, Melos didn't overthink the occasion when two nights ago he was visited by Mr. Latimer, a fashionable man who claimed to have a Greek colleague visiting on business. Both parties were in need of his linguistic help. Despite being told that their destination was Kensington, Melos was instead carried off for a two-hour ride to an unidentified location. Unidentified because Mr. Latimer drew the curtains of the carriage and made threateningly sure with the help of a bludgeon's appearance that Melos wouldn't know where they were heading. They soon arrived at an estate and were greeted by another man, a giggling four-eyes whose bullying doublespeak certified the danger that Melas now found himself in. Still, assured of his safety, if he cooperated, and having, really, no further recourse, he follows the man into a room kinked up like Bond and Kissy's love nest from You Only Live Twice, complete with shag carpeting and Japanese suits of armor. From, out- from outside the room, possibly Jack Pierce's trailer in the back lot of Universal, entered a thin and bandaged specter of a man who fell into the chair opposite Melos. We're told that this man was... Deadly pale and terribly emaciated with protruding, brilliant eyes, and that his face was grotesquely crisscrossed with sticking plasters. That's band-aids to us. It's yeah. here that things become clearer for Melos as he's instructed to issue statements in Greek to this starving man. Through the combative conversation regarding property, signing papers, and not giving in, Melos is able to tease out some secrets from the prisoner like his name and origin, Kratides from Athens. Before the interpreter is able to gain the full story, a graceful woman enters the room and recognizes the prisoner, calling him Paul in Greek, and the two share a joyful embrace for a moment before being pulled apart. Melos is then paid five sovereigns, ushered from the home with more threatening reminders, and is carriaged back to Wandsworth Common, some distance from where he was picked up in time to catch the last train. It doesn't take long for Sherlock to deduce that the Greek man. Cretides is being held captive in this home, tortured and extorted by Latimer and his creepy partner. They're pressuring him to sign sign over ownership of property, presumably held by Sophie's family. It would seem that Latimer and Sophie are an item, but she, Jan, like so many women we have met in this series, isn't in full control of her fortune. Cretides is the trusty brother who is refusing to turn over the goods. In a questionable move, which we will discuss in more detail here today, Mycroft reveals that he has already posted an anonymous ad in the paper looking for any information on the whereabouts of Paul or Sophie Credites. While this ad does bear fruit later in the day, a J. Davenport responds with an address to follow up. It places Melos in a very dangerous position with the metaphorical cat out of the bag. The response claims that a woman matching Sophie's description is staying at the Myrtles, Beckenham. Curiously, Mycroft then belies his own genius in suggesting that they head over to Davenport's Brixen address to find out more, whereas Sherlock correctly encourages fast action straight to Beckenham with help from Scotland Yard, as lives will by now be more seriously at risk. Delayed by police procedure, and with the denouement very much begun, Watson recommends picking up Melos for the help along the way, but are met only by his landlady when they call. She tells them that the nervous Greek was only recently collected by a laughing man in glasses and taken away in a carriage. The stakes have indeed risen. Insert chase music here. When our <laughs> heroes arrive at the Myrtles, they find the property dark and abandoned. Holmes notes the deep outward-bound wheel tracks and figures that a weighted carriage had recently left the property. Wasting no time with the locked door, Holmes jimmies a side window and enters via the shagtastic oriental room described earlier by the interpreter. Low moans are heard from above, and the would-be rescuers burst into a smoke-filled room where a charcoal cloud has engulfed two bodies. The smoke was too much for the starved but who died, but the other victim, our intrepid interpreter, is saved by Watson's treatment of ammonia and brandy. Though no answers are revealed, we're fairly safe in presuming that poor Sophie was a victim of Stockholm Syndrome, though perhaps love came first in her case, and her brother Paul, once his cooperation was ruled out, was just an expendable interloper in Latimer's bigger-picture plan. Doyle ends the somewhat, or the story somewhat apocryphally with Holmes and Watson receiving a newspaper article from Budapest months later reporting on the stabbing death of two men and the disappearance of their female traveling partner. Had Sophie waited for her own right moment to revenge? Or had some Olympian karma finally caught up with its mark and hit Latimer? Only Zeus and Sophie will know for sure.
1: Sophie or Electra more so you go to Greek uh, Greek mythology here
0: I just didn't want to get too far too close into the for your eyes only uh, connections
1: oh yeah that's right Melina Havelock here yeah there's a
0: bit of that probably but anyway let's get into it buddy Uh, I've already lit my pipe it's uh, smoking nicely here so
1: yeah I'll just take a puff here so um, that's that's a good puff Holmes is on point I think in this one um but through the dynamic uh, of himself and Mycroft, we see that Holmes is passionate about his work and does not consider it a mere hobby in the same fashion that Mycroft does. Uh, that's what I really liked about seeing Mycroft and having this the, even greater powers than Holmes has, or, or at least just as equal, is that Holmes has the ambition to go out and use his powers for good in his own way, for justice, as he's seen before. He has ideals, he has... Ways he feels about the world. Mycroft seems here just like a, a government uh, desk job jockey c- kind of guy who's really smart with numbers, and that's what he does. And but he also kind of enjoys, you know, as a hobby, getting out of his the doldrums of of uh, ter- terrible wall paint and uh, and flooring, and enjoying, you know, like you know his his desserts at the uh, Diogenes Clubs at and able to uh, look at look at the human condition in his own kind of curious way and use his powers in that fashion, but only as a hobby, right? But I think yeah. later on as you see in the narrative, uh, when he shows up at, at the at 221B Baker Street, he seems to have his increase his ambition a little bit more. He's he's mobile, he's moving around, he wants to see what homes and them are up to on the case, right? So Maybe Holmes is rubbing off on Mycroft as now as he's rubbing off on, on Watson. Mm-hmm. So I did like that dynamic. Watson, he takes along, but he provides insight into the situation and uh, and has again at a strong agency here. He's a loyal friend, and he's a a useful partner. Um, with Holmes and Watson displaying these this strong simpatico in this tale. Uh, just think of the moment too where, Uh, They're about to go and get Millas and Watson grabs, he sees Holmes grabbing the gun and just through eye contact, Holmes knows, you know, I'm going to need this, you know, we're dealing with dangerous people. ACD does a great job of really showing the relationship in this particular story, even though as that credit, as that, you know, that critic uh, in the Goodreads said that it wasn't um, uh, the same kind of deductive reasoning. Uh, that solves the case in, in the end. It to me it did show them at work as crime busters and I really like that. Yeah,
0: so, I, I think you're right. And it's similar to in the Barrel Coronet at the end where he goes to that guy George, whatever his name is, his house and just basically puts a gun to his head. <laughs> That's all he does. Yeah.
1: So I don't know. I really like the dynamic of, of Holmes and Watson. I liked how what Mycroft brought to Holmes as the character in, in contrast. And I, I give it four point five for the uh, principles.
0: Wow, okay. So your highest mark on principles for the day, 4.5. That's right. Cool. Uh, I went 4. I really liked it too for many of the same reasons that uh, that you felt. I just didn't think it was as good for me as the way they work together in the Ragged Squires. But uh, yeah, cool man. That's, that's good. It's good to hear you uh, really, really enthusiastic about them in this one.
1: Yeah. So let's go to investigation. The story was well-structured. Uh, it was intriguing, uh, with new faucets on Holmes presented. Uh, the Mycroft meeting is great to showcase Holmes's ambitious, passionate spirit, and it candidly allows, it sorry, credibly, my apologies, allows Mellis into the story. mellis uh, tale is intriguing, and it's very stressful. The cab ride, the meeting with with uh, the meeting with C- C- Paul Cretides uh, at the house, the investigation into Sophie and the arrival of Mycroft, it kicks the third act into gear. Uh, Holmes is grabbing his pistol, the revelation that Melis is gone, taken by Kemp and Latimer. Um, just the whole... Uh, the, the grisly scene that allows... You know, it gives the meaningful death of Sophie's brother. Uh, and while, you know... We get a... Uh, kind of uh, less of a resolution because Holmes and Watson didn't nap uh, Lat- Latimer and Kemp in time to save Paul, we still have, you know, that coda where Latimer and Kemp uh, get some Greek justice in in the end. I found that extremely satisfying. Mm-hmm. And of all like the pat, you know, ending that Holmes, sorry, that ACD has given a lot of these stories, I found that the um, this particular like, oh, by the way, this happened was much uh, stronger than we had before. Yeah. So I give the investigation 4.5 for structure, cont- context, everything. This was my crooked man. I think of the uh, four stories.
0: Okay, wow. Um, so do you then? Do you think then that it it, it needed to be Sophie who did this? I th- I think so. And if so, I ha- think so, how did she how did she excise herself from that Stockholm syndrome environment? Like, or do you think that was See, even part of it?
1: I don't think it was thought syndrome at all but i'll get in I'll, I'll get i'll get into that shortly
0: okay i look forward to hearing you because you know she did say when she entered the room oh i'm just tired of being up by myself i don't want like she obviously had freedom to move and a relationship there that that did exist that exactly. level so anyway okay cool well we'll get the things that i picked up in my annotations as i was reading because i was recalling what you were saying about and I suppose what's kind of public knowledge for Sherlockians uh, about Holmes, uh, Doyle's mentor, uh, Doctor Bell, wasn't it? Who, um, who helped out? Who he uh, based Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, off of. yeah. Who he based? It is Bell, though, isn't it? Like, correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Yeah, I think it's Bell, I believe. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Doctor Joseph Bell. Um, I'm drawing attention here. If you want to look at it, to the um, to the scene where they're talking about the two uh, hang on a second yeah just at the beginning when um when they're looking at um, got the kids books under his arms right you remember from from above in the diogenes club they're looking down this is when we first meet mycroft yes um yeah, uh, and Holmes says, Then, of course, his complete mourning shows that he has lost someone very dear. Uh, the fact that he's doing so with his own shopping looks as though it were his wife. Or maybe that was Mycroft saying that. Yeah, it was Mycroft. There's a rattle which shows that one of them is very young, the children. The wife probably died in childbirth. The fact that uh, he has a picture book under his arm shows that there's another child to be thought of. All right, so this is Mycroft showing off. And this is like an interesting tete-a-tete. I like this little scene between the two of them. But here's the point I want to uh, draw back to Bell. I found this neat and I wouldn't have known it had I not had this uh, edited or this annotated edition. Uh, Conan Doyle in his autobiography Memoirs and Adventures or Memories and Adventures, relates a similar diagnosis by his mentor, doctor Joseph Bell, who once glanced at a patient and declared, Well, my man, you've served in the army. Aye, sir. Not long discharged? No, sir. A Highland regiment? Aye, sir. A non-com officer? Aye, sir. Stationed at Barbados? Aye, sir. Bell then explained to his befuddled students how he had come to those conclusions, observing that, quote, the man was a respectful man, but did not remove his hat. They do not do that in the army. Uh, But he would learn, uh, but he would have learned civilian ways had he been long discharged. He has an air of authority and he's obviously Scottish. As to Barbados, his complaint is elephantitis, which is West Indian and not British. And the Scottish residents are at present in that particular island. I thought that was really cool. Just yeah. because it's almost it, it's basically different detail, but exactly the same process, you know, that we get in from Conan Doyle's um, complimentary autobiography in discussing this guy Joseph Bell. You know, he he just transforms it directly into this dialogue with Mycroft.
1: That's pretty cool, actually. That is that's, cool. That's that's, that's, yeah. that's a good context to uh to know as well.
0: Yeah. Well, anyway, look. The one I agree with everything you said. Okay. The only thing that I felt like the ending was really slapdash myself. Um, I know you feel like it was quite fitting and that's cool. Uh, I gave the investigation uh, a four as well. No, sorry. I I gave it a four. You gave it a 4.5. But the one part that you didn't talk about from an investigation point of view, but I'm sure you will talk about in a few moments, is the idea of Paul himself and Mm. into the story. Like he is like a creature from the universal backlot like he's so creepy the way he's discussed the way he's described here like i was really kind of and i I guess i was helped along by
1: well they said he was emaciated so like i pictured like a holocaust like you know the like the the pictures of, uh, of liberated uh concentration camp prisoners you know what i mean
0: yes but he was wearing like a kind of like a gown and he has these band-aids covering his mouth and his face. Like, he's this is a really creepy scene, I, I think. Oh, it's yeah. Really it's, it's,
1: it's, it's very nightmarish and and distressing, absolutely. And this is the
0: second time um, we get at, – well, at least the second time we get a um, a carriage ride that's kind of uh, uh, anonymous, if you see what I mean, or um, disguised. Because the engineer's thumb featured it as well, even though they just drove around in a circle for an hour. Um, yeah, yeah. Here you get the same thing, and I really like the touch there, and I really like the touch here. I think it, I think it works really well. Um, we'll say more about it later. One of the things I think really, really works for this story, though, is the supporting cast and the perpetrators, particularly. So I went, yes. I went for a four on the investigation because I don't really think that Holmes and Watson are quite as close knit in this one as you do. Um, I also feel like it's a bit of a failure for Holmes and Watson as an investigation because. Holmes almost loses his client, right? And yes. Paul dies. So it it isn't a success story for these guys. And I I appreciate but I, but I, I appreciate I, but I like that, that though. Yeah, I find that yeah. refreshing. It is it is refreshing. Uh, I'm not saying they need to be, but um I was kind of hoping for a a bit more of a positive spin at the end, but maybe that maybe that's just me having um I don't know. I don't, I don't really know, but uh, I went for a 4 anyway. So it's still a good mark. It's just still a, a oh, good yeah. investigation. Right? over to you perpetrators
1: one last thing I want to say about the investigation okay yeah and, and as a whole of like the narrative style everything I think more information about Latimer and Kemp to me would have pushed this to a five I, I would like a bit more background on their stories because while they made an impression a little more background on Luther and Kemp and even I think possibly on Paul and Sophie to explain Sophie's situation because I think her situation is very ambiguous. And if you draw the wrong conclusions, or or you draw different conclusions, I should say, on Sophie's relationship to Latimer and then to her brother in this situation, um, she either appears to be a woman who, a victim who survived, or someone who finally clued in at the very end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's my say on that. Uh, well, moving to the perpetrators. Uh Let's just go to Latimer. Uh, He makes an impression right away as a smooth, talking, cold SOB. Um, Where is it here? It begins when Melas is picked up for the carriage ride in Pall Mall. So, I say, into the cab, but soon I, but I soon became doubtful as to whether it was not a carriage in which I found myself. It was certainly more roomy than the ordinary four-wheeled disgrace to London, and the fittings, though frayed, were of rich quality. Mr. Latimer seated himself opposite to me, and we started off through Charing Cross and up the Shaftesbury Avenue. We had come out upon Oxford Street, and I ventured some remark as its being a roundabout way to Kensington, where my words were arrested by the extraordinary conduct of my companion. He began by drawing a most formidable-looking bludgeon loaded with lead from his pocket, and yeah, pushing cool. it backward and forward several times as if it detested weight and strength. Then he placed it without a word upon the seat beside him. Having done this, he drew up the windows on each side, and I found, to my astonishment, they were covered with paper so as to prevent my seeing through them. "'I'm sorry to cut off your view,' Mr. Mellis said he. "'The fact is that I have no intention that you should see what places to which we are driving.' It might possibly be inconvenient to me if you could find your way there again. As you can imagine, I can utterly, I was utterly taken aback by such an address. My companion was such a powerful, broad shouldered young fellow, and apart from the weapon I should not have had the slightest chance to struggle with him. This is very extraordinary conduct, Mr Latimer, I stammered. You must be aware that of what you are doing is quite illegal. It is somewhat of a liberty to me is sorry, it is somewhat of a liberty, no doubt, said he. But we'll make it up to you. I must warn you, however, Mr. Mellas, that if any time tonight you attempt to raise an alarm or do anything which is against my interest, you will find it a very serious thing. I beg you to remember that no one knows where you are, and that whether you are in this carriage or in my house, you are equally in my power. His words were quiet, but he had a rasping way of saying them, which was very menacing. I sat in silence, wondering what on earth could be this reason for kidnapping me in this extraordinary fashion. Whatever it might be, it was perfectly clear there was no possible use in my resisting. And that I could only wait to see what I, what might befall. Brr, you know. Mm,
0: yeah, and I wonder if that's the same sort of intimidation uh, charm. Well, it's not really charm, but sleaze, or uh, no, it's not sleaze either. I don't know what I'm trying to say. The same sort of intimidation that he's using, or he used to, uh, to kind of manipulate Sophie.
1: Well, if you look at Melas, who's probably an older, se- heterosexual as well, man. Latimer is just a young guy who seems polite and, and you know, like he seems good enough to, to, you know, and looks like he's like a, he probably looks like a stand up, well dressed kind of guy. But to Sophie, he's this good looking British man, you know, who's probably all charm and Mm. subtly uses that power, that prowess to grinder down you know what i mean i do yeah i see what you're saying
0: plus he but he's also got a real set of balls on him too because if he if he did his research he would know that this guy melos who's introduced to us by watson or he introduced himself as the chief uh, greek investigator interpreter in london so like he interprets all different types of languages they must have known that this guy is not one to just take lightly but you've really because he is the best right he's the best
1: there'll be people looking for him if he disappears absolutely yeah yeah but maybe he knows something other that that you know that they would just go find find an, another one, you know, mm. kind of like what him and Kemp are trying to do here. Yeah. Um. So Latimer is young. He's intimidating. He's uh, commanding. You can see how he took control of Sophie with charm and uh, forcefulness. That's what I'm trying to say through that example. Yeah,
0: even though we don't know what like we, we it would have been nice to have a little bit more story about that, you know.
1: That's what I'm saying, like that creates a bit of ambiguity there in my opinion. I, I do you uh, think that
0: favors do you think that favors the, the story?
1: I think it might slightly uh what's the word? It might damage it a little bit.
0: Right, okay. But um yeah. because you remember As you I said, remember uh, the it noble it Bachelor, where we, of- where we get we got the the big info drop of Hattie Dornan and her relationship and um and uh, you know everything about her husband and when he showed up at the, and gave her the bouquet message and all that like we got a real big info drop there that explained their past and i didn't feel like when he showed up uh we were in any question about what was going on you know but here the relationship is a little vague and i know that that plays well into the the mystery genre but uh this is a darker story than that one you know um mm-hmm. but but still it would have been nice to have it fleshed out a bit more
1: yeah, in the end, this guy is—he's is, is someone not to be trifled with. We can both agree. Yes. Um, yes. Kemp—he seems to be a mentor for Latimer, a man who took, uh, who takes his, you know, who takes his superficially eloquent young man and molds him into a formidable figure, uh, with his nervous laughter, with his um, c- contrasting against, you know, his commonplace looks, and he looks like just like an everyday kind of guy, you know, but then he has like, those cold gray eyes, you know, like. This guy is a piece of work, and the nervous laughter is kind of like a little bit of his Bond villain sort of uh, uh, eccentricity yeah. tri- tr- that gives a menace. You know what I mean?
0: I do. I got I got a vibe of uh, what's the guy's name from Raiders of the Lost Ark? Golt or whatever his name is.
1: Oh, the uh, the, the 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 black uh, yeah. What's his name? Um, I think it's he's Golt. The, anyway, him. He's the big uh, he, he's the big black tr- trench coat Gestapo dude. Yeah, I got a feeling – I I kind
0: of got a vibe about him. But uh, I liked these guys a lot. Uh, I really did like the perpetrators. I thought it was, like, even though what they were trying to do was a little vague and how much money was at stake was a little strange. Like, I didn't get all that. We, it would have been nice to see what, you know, what the prize was that they were fighting for and what was worth this type of a setup. But um, I, I did like them. I felt like their motive was a little, little develop. yeah, and I would have liked more of that. So I knew what was at stake and how much this was worth fighting for. Uh, but I went for a four
1: myself. Okay. I was going with a 4.5 initially, okay. but now yep. I'm kind of at a 4 due to the lack of... Because um, I think that the perpetrators work better as in the overall storyline, in my opinion. But in detail themselves, they need a little more fleshing out. And that fleshing out, I think, could have also made the story a little bit better, in, in my opinion. But I did like their presence in the story, and mm-hmm. they gave the, a much-needed menace to it. Yeah, and this, uh,
0: this is a story that probably could have benefited from a bit of a longer treatment you know like this this could have been novella like we've said that about five or six of these that this could have been nicer if it was a bit longer
1: yeah a lot of these stories i think would have made great novellas in my opinion
0: oh well there's enough room now for a spin-off so you know like an expanded universe we can talk about these guys
1: (laughs) yeah definitely that's true yeah so and again those like that's my conclusions you know that i can draw that i draw like i it's uh a little more development on their end would go a long way. So four, solid four in this respect when it comes to the perpetrator.
0: A little technical difficulties there. Right, back on it too. um In terms of environment, uh, this is, as I was trying to say, one of the only stories looking through, just looking through here. Not since Copper Beaches have I been so complimentary about the setting of a story. Uh, I went full marks for this one, 5 I thought that the environment and this story was awesome. The the, the the interiors that we get and the exterior pictures that we get as well. I love the Di- the Diogenes Club. I think it's a really cool place. And I'm aware that it isn't itself really all that rare in the context of the writing, but um, Mycroft's membership to this club was, uh, was as I've learned, likely to subgrid or to see... Uh, let me try this again. Mycroft's membership to the club was likely... Uh, derived or inspired by Conan Doyle's knowledge of the establishments within the Pall Mall address of the time mm. uh, a process of elimination weeds down to the Marlboro the Marlborough Club and the new Athenium Club uh, given the proximity markers in the text now there's an annotation here I'm not going to bother reading but basically it's it's really interesting because it takes you through all of the clubs that were existent at the time in an effort to discern which one he's been specific about here you see what i mean
1: i see what you mean yeah
0: uh it's it's cool but i like the way it's described like all the different chambers some of them you're allowed to talk in quietly but most of them are just sort of for quiet study and reflection there is a real philosophical cynical feel to this place so it, it fits in well with the title you know of uh, diogenes and and the philosophy yeah. of the cynics I, I like that and mycroft himself too sitting as he does in the windowsill looking down it's all very interesting stuff Uh, I like it, but I I like the atmosphere in this story, it is tense, it is tense, and um, although I would like to give that overall to the narration, it isn't so much the storytelling as the environments, I think, that that breed the tension here, the darkness of the rooms, the carriage ride that's sort of very enclosed, it's like the engineer's thumb in a way, like, I really like the environment here, and I, I was on a bit of a flourish when I scored, but I think that that's one of the well. I think that is the strongest feature of this story is the environment of the room that helps to hold up the the ghostly presence of Paul and everything else that's going on around him. There's a mm. threat everywhere in the big and the small. The carriage itself is really well described for us, and this is a luxurious carriage as well. Uh, Conan Doyle points out it's not just a little two seater. You know, it's 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 cool. This story is really engaging for its visuals, both the um, the scuzzy bits. Of the room that are full of charcoal mm. in in the estate at the Myrtles, and then you've got the splendor of the Diogenes Club, and even even uh, Melas's rooms. You know they're really interesting too. Like I like this. I like the story for its environment. I went full marks. I might regret that, but uh, I don't yet.
1: I got four point five. Uh, that coach ride from Paul Mall to Beckenham is a good work of sus- is a great work actually of suspense, especially you know with the shaded windows. Uh, the L- Latimer slash Kemp's estate, you know, it's a great set piece. That single gaslight, you know, the colored gaslight, the just the whole mezzanine scent of the furniture, the samurai armor, uh, it brings more questions and intrigue to Latimer and Kemp and kind of feed into my little bit of my disappointment on their lack of development there. Um, not much beyond that aside, you know, from like the roadways of Greater London described to convey. You know, that race against time. I feel like we're always going down the roads all the time, right? And yeah, and feeling yeah. that, it just permeates the story with that constant motion and momentum that drive it. And just the, the, just the, the stress, the tension of this whole tale. Mm-hmm. And the Diogenes Club, you know, it's a delightful new addition uh, to our locales. Uh, My Cross Lair is intriguing. It's whimsical in its own way. It's so believably British as well. Um, I also like how it suggests the inner workings of the on uh, the state level, and it helps ground I think Holmes and Watson into a greater fictional world.
0: Cool. So you went four point five. I went for five. Let's uh um, yeah. l- Let's wrap this puppy up. Let's do the
1: supporting players. All right. So we got Mycroft, the opposite of Sherlock. He's he's uh, corpulent, uh, as we know, but he's not ambitious. No. But we know from develop, uh, f- but we get uh, see this room for development because he's Sherlock's passion for crime solving. It seems to enliven Mycroft enough to take that handsome all the way to Holmes's apartment. He's curious to see if his, you know, if, if if this investigation will pan out. He's and because this guy maybe because his neighbor upstairs, he's a little more in- invested. So he's not as cynical as he would seem to be in his Diogenes Club. Uh, that's you know?
0: that's an astute reading of him. Yeah yeah absolutely um
1: moving forward uh, you get that uh uber you know in uh at uber ride it just really shows mellis uh as his amiable you know but he's is he bright to enter Latimer's coach? I don't know. As we discussed we discuss Latimer. He's a he's a good-looking, well-dressed young man, and they probably thought he was just on to another great contract, right? I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. a very yeah. viable contract. So he seems like there wasn't really much to him beyond just being a victim of circumstance, though, if you think about it, with Melis. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. We're, told, really we're
0: told what we need to know about him. He's not really a rounded character.
1: Yeah, and Gregson doesn't really have much no, of a presence no. at all. He's typical Scotland Yard making wrong conclusions. Yeah, and holding um, up the
0: investigation. Maybe he's responsible for Paul's death ultimately.
1: In the way it is, yeah. I want to add too about the investigation that this was actually a strong part of me that made me give it a really strong marks was that whole sequence about um, when they that whole race, you know, against time to save Paul. So come along, cried Sherlock Holmes abruptly. This grows serious. He observed as we drove to Scotland Yard. These men have got hold of Mellis again. He is a man of no physical courage, and they are well aware from their experience that the other night. This villain was able to terrorize him from the instant that he got into his presence. No doubt they wanted professional services, but having used him, they may be inclined to punish him for what they will regard as his treachery. Our hope was that by taking train, we might get to Beckenham as soon as or sooner than the carriage. On reaching Scotland Yard, however, it was more than an hour before we could get Inspector Gregson and comply with the legal formalities, which would enable us to enter the house. It was quarter to ten before we reached London Bridge and half past before the four of us alighted on the Beckenham platform. A drive of half a mile brought us to the Brutals, a large, dark horse standing back from the road in its own grounds. Here we dismissed our cab and made our way up the drive together. Just these whole sequence of events in that one paragraph, like Holmes showing the urgency of the situation and then getting to Scotland Yard and dealing with bureaucracy just to save this man's life, you know, like that's just how it is. And that really, really stood out to me. And made the narrative a lot stronger in in in, in 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 a way. I know it's not really going into supporting players, but Gregson kind of segued into this for me.
0: Okay, so you went for what overall with your supporting players?
1: I went with four. Okay. Um, Melas, I said, a situation provided it, it it provided a sparse playing field because the villains took over pretty much. Sophie is barely a footnote. That you know. Uh, that ACD generously allows the average, uh, he, 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 allows her to avoid the average fate of having brain fever. Thank God. Um, or maybe she does have brain fever and that's why she was with, uh, what's his name. Uh, and then finally snapped out of it over in Hungary when she, uh, took out, uh, Kemp and Latimer. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but he gets, he allows her to, to avenge her brother, Electra style. So that's kind of cool. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she definitely more development, Cratidis needed more development and Latimer and, uh, Kemp needed more development in terms of their motivations. Uh, cause I felt that Cratidis' uh, development was really crucial and I think it would have given stronger emotional and impact narrative depth, even to Cratidis' fate in the end. Yes. That's and it would have made the point. revenge of Sophie less than a, much more than a footnote at the end. Do you know what I mean? Mm
0: hmm. um, I went for a 4.5 with my supporting uh players and partly the re- like I agree with everything you said but I think that there's a little bit more depth here to Mycroft and I don't know if this is me as a and I don't think I am reading this as a conspiracy theorist or anything and I mean I think we're pretty much on par with the stories now so what his role is going to be in the stories we'll we'll soon discover more but I found it really interesting and I don't know if it was just like an oversight by Conan Doyle or not but I found it very interesting that Mycroft didn't tell Holmes or Sherlock about the interpreter's story, about Melos' story. And to me, that suggests, okay, yeah, that he's really lazy. Or, also maybe, given something else that happens, he could be in league with some criminality here. Because, you know, it would only be a criminal, wouldn't it, who wouldn't act on the story immediately knowing that there's a life at risk. And I find that, that that's really disconcerting, like, as a reader, like, to try to buy that this guy is on the good side because there's yeah. lives at risk here and he doesn't do anything about that. Plus, and this is a real sticker for me, he leaked melos 's story to the press in form of this advertisement, which was a sure way of letting the culprits know that the jig was going to be up, right? And in, a, in an effort, he's sending a signal a foolish and very careless thing to do to these guys to say, hey, look, uh, they know you're onto them. And I think that there's definitely food for thought about Mycroft's own uh, motives in this story. Like, I, I, I mean, maybe I'm making too much out of it, but I think that that intrigue helped me go a little bit more in his direction for a 4.5. So I really like the supporting play here. And I agree with everything you said about the gaps in Sophie uh, and, and also Paul physically on the page and off it. He's very impressive. Like the way he's described and the way he moves and his 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 his, him being a tortured prisoner. I I find that really compelling. And I would love to have it fleshed out more, which I guess is why I'm shaving half a mark off it. But I really found the supporting cast here engaging and gripping and Mm. I'm not I'm not convinced that Latimer isn't himself a puppet. Like and although he is um, Mm. although he is definitely a perpetrator uh, that I like. I think that he's still being used a little bit here. He's the guy that goes out and does all the hard work of of collecting melos and all that stuff, you know. And,
1: so and you know. I, I don't know. I just I, so you're I'm suggesting
0: cool.
1: so you're suggesting there's a hand of someone who uh, works in academia here, hey?
0: Potentially, man. I don't. I don't know. I I just think the morality of Mycroft's character is is among the. The, the most interesting of takeaway issues that this story has to offer for me. I, I think it's cool, and it'll be interesting to see how this character's developed, if at all, later on. And maybe it was just a, a one thing. Maybe it was just, here's his lazy brother who's smart, and he can talk about the gifts that a soldier buys for his, you know, widow children. I don't, I don't know, but I found it interesting, and I think that there's, 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 you know, there's room for support in what I'm saying about the potential illegality of Mycroft's movements here in this story.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that, and that's a really good point. And I'm curious to see if we'll see Mycroft again, and yeah, and yeah. if uh, your prediction does uh, come to some sort of fruition as to his mm. uh, motivations.
0: Well, it's it's a suspicion, not a prediction, but at this stage, I'll I'll yeah. let it go with that. Suspicion, well, that, yeah. That that brings me to a twenty-one for that story, man, and you're at a twenty-one point five. So that is, as I'm reading now, the most popular story. In the memoirs for both of us right now, Silver Blaze is number two. Oh, a- wow. According to our scoring index, and I mean that's only part of the picture, but that that's a big part
1: of the picture. Yes. Ah, oh, interesting. It's I, interesting how like certain how certain parts of this of the pipes uh, displayed, you know, our own sub- subjectivity. Yeah. And then cool. our, and then. Show where we display our objectivity to certain things outside of our own personal interests. Yeah. So it's a very it's a very good good grading on how like uh, how we take in art and how we take in uh, uh, any kind of text. You know. Hmm. It's cool. And another thing that I didn't put in these
0: in the pipes because I didn't really know where it fit, but maybe environment, I guess. But one of the things that I also liked about it, this story particularly, is how it showed in a in a way different to the crooked man because the crooked man talked about the empire right but but this story particularly showed um more of london as that sort of um more of uh, the working immigrant side of its cosmopolitan edge you know what i mean like it showed london as a city that involved and included at this time a lot of interesting foreign activity and I liked that. I thought that was cool to have the. Yes. It wasn't just a local guy doing local crimes, big or small. This was something more uh, international, and I liked that that touch to the story because London is, of course, that that way
1: inclined, right? Yeah, yeah, especially nowadays compared yeah, it's to a melting pot. Yeah, p- compared to now, like compared to back then, you know, late Victorian era. But even then, I think that's when the cosmopolitans. Uh, Forces started to control London, uh, you know, just before World War One, right? Uh, mm-hmm. you, you have the it's it's, it's like uh, Rome at the, ha- the height of its power, you know, where the empire is expanded to all these different borders, and all these people are coming in and and, and creating different uh, social networks all across the this the, the city yeah. and across the countryside, yeah. and it's uh yeah, it's a very interesting um what's the word diasporas of different people mm-hmm. Greek in this case
0: in this case Greek. And on that Greek note, Josh, uh, for our last tune of the afternoon and this long episode that we are now drawing to a conclusion, I've got uh, a Greek selection. And it's a traditional Greek song I'd like to share with you here, um, sung in Greek, but it's, if I have it here... Nanamaskuri? No, 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 I wrote down... No, no, no. I wrote down its... um, Yeah, I wrote down its translation because it's it's written in Greek, but it translates the title of the song to sometimes he's a great guy and I thought that that fit well for Sophie's potential relationship to to Latimer. <laughs> sometimes great. he's a great guy. yeah, like like when he isn't trying to kidnap my brother and extort him for money anyway, yeah,
1: sometimes sometimes yeah he, there, there's good in him, I know there is mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes. so as as we play this on, um, any closing
0: uh, any closing comments then for our episode today?
1: I think your choice of Jenny Lewis at the very beginning bad 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 man's world I think uh, that is fitting for all these stories so that was a good choice on your heart your part
0: all right pal well look it's been a blast um, I'll get on to the post-production of these pieces and start reading the naval treaty and uh, the final problem Then the for, final problem for our last episode so yeah here we go uh, a little bit of this traditional Greek sometimes he's a great guy <laughs> Okay, you get the feel. Cheers, cheers. Okay, now that was a that was a tease actually because that was um, a tease. Yeah, because I promised you a bit more Black Sabbath. I'm not going to give you Black Sabbath, but I'm going to give you the other sound selection for this story: Latimer's Mercy, which comes off Ozzy Osbourne's uh, album Scream. Latimer,
1: that's a perfect. choice. That's the actual name of the song.
0: Yeah, Latimer's Mercy, and uh, Latimer didn't give much mercy, but I don't think he got any much at the end either.
1: No, we didn't deserve it. But uh, let's Ozzy sing his song for us. Right. Ozzy, sing us out. See you, pal. Later, Bowman.